Hello everyone and welcome to episode 121 of Dominaria's Judgment, a mostly weekly, mostly constructed magic podcast. Both of those uh, terms have been used pretty loosely over the past few weeks where uh, you've been away, I've been away, we've dabbled in some cube and uh, have had some interviews and, and some other things as well, but we are finally back in here uh, together again and there is a lot to talk about. We have a new set uh, on uh, the horizon here, as it seems like we always do, but we do actually have uh, a full spoiler and there is a lot to dive into there i it seems like i think that there is more to dive into than you do so maybe that will be a talking point in its own right but we also have several weeks worth of uh, beautiful discourse uh, on the website uh, to catch up on as well and then also i guess any uh freestyle uh, trip report european uh discourse i suppose if you want to frame it that way i don't know i probably would have had more to say about the discourse the week it happened but like when you sit and think about it for two weeks you're like yeah whatever or you have like a more tempered, less hot take opinion. I'm understanding what people mean now when they say that the the pace of both the set releases and just uh, the, uh, the the news cycle is so fast that things just become a blur and you forget about them quickly. So like the, the fact that we were all up in arms or uh, I guess defending in some cases the pack restructuring where uh, play boosters are now uh, being consolidated into this one thing, not going to have a uh, set boosters over here, draft boosters over here. It feels like that was months ago and just is how magic it is now and always has been uh, at this point, even though in real time that was what, uh, two or three weeks? Uh, yeah, about barely two weeks. It it feels like it basically has been confirmed for years. It's kind of wild. Yeah, I I have come to terms with it already and just internalized that as the way things are. Even though uh, this set is still going to have the the old uh, set booster versus draft booster distinction, and even though none of us have actually held a physical play booster in our hands and won't get to for another few months yet, but even despite all of that, it, it feels like yeah, that's just how it is. What what are you talking about? Yeah, I, this was one where I think my opinion changed a little bit over time. Let's talk back to like the fire era goals of limited design, not talking about anything else. There, there's two big things that impacted this. Um, one is that the idea that every rare should be for everyone has translated into you just have to push the rate on every rare ever existing. Um, and it messes up limited in a lot of ways. And then the other was like, there should be a clear common that people can first pick in every color. And the combination of those two uh, already basically created formats by default where the like eighth common in every pack didn't matter. And it, I, that's been part of my problem with limited in general. This doesn't break that. Maybe it fixes it by redistributing like rarities and changing how commons have to be designed in general. But like, it's not like it's breaking something that was already broken. Like I would like to go back to like the hour of devastation era of design, but I just I don't see them doing that. And that's a whole, that's a whole episode of its own to begin with. So let's I'll leave that there. We also got this uh this preview of discourse to come in 2025, if you like, because we had the announcement of the uh the universes beyond tie-in that we all have been waiting for whether with uh, excitement or trepidation or a little bit of both we have the marvel crossover uh, officially announced now and just in terms of what the universes beyond concept is trying to do from a like a, a corporate standpoint this is a big one like th- th- this is uh if if they manage to pull this off and it hits in the same way that uh lord of the rings hit for that audience where by a lot of metrics that was just the best-selling set of all time this has the ability to really outscale that and to scale magic's growth in in a big way which again it, it feels weird to have the discussion of this in those terms as people who are already uh maybe t- too enfranchised uh in the game uh but like 
yeah, I, I guess for the people whose job it is to look at uh, the customer acquisition numbers, great. I, I'm sure this is uh, uh, great news for them. But I'm not sure why those are the terms which the rest of us should be thinking about it. And if you think there's anything to add there, then sure. But we can talk about those just through whatever lens we prefer uh, otherwise as well. I, I, mean, I think that this is great. I think that uh, if you had asked, if they had revealed this set a year ago, I would have been extremely cautious. Uh, they have built up a lot of goodwill with the last three universes beyond releases. Like, I think that the first two, well, the first two universes beyond releases were, um, The Walking Dead, which was just a mess. And then, uh, I mean, I would count, uh, AFR in that. And that set was, oh boy, that set was problems. And it really felt like those two sets, were, like, not only bad and bad for the game, but, like, it felt like the people designing them didn't actually know what they were trying to do, like, with the product. It, it's just really astounding. The, the, I could go on without AFR, and I have before, but, like, it is, it's so poorly designed. But then every set since then, they basically leaned into the fact that, like, all of these IPs have half-designed cards for them, and, like, created, like, this is a no-good concept, just, like, do the other half of the work and get it on cardboard. And they've done a really good job of that between, you know, Lord of the Rings, Doctor Who, and I, I don't have any issues, like, or bad expectations about the Marvel sets, like... I guess the the big picture worry I have is, how successful do I want this to be? Because I, I think the, the doomsday scenario that some people have identified, the, the mainstream standard releases do, do fine, uh, they're not... Uh, lagging behind where we want them to be, but they're just kind of trucking along at the regular pace. So let's say uh, Ixlan and Motors of uh, Color of Mana and so on, and, and the sets after that, they they get you know basically the numbers that they're on track to get. And then uh, the Marvel set just blows them out of the water the same way that the, the Lord of the Rings set does. And then some of these other uh, tie-ins with other IPs uh, hit uh, the, the, that same kind of figure as well. Do we get to the point where uh, someone in the C-suite in a in a suit just looks at that and says, "Yeah, this is what where the focus should be now. Like, it should be about the uh, whatever universes beyond uh, Star Wars thing we can finagle with our, our marketing department, and much less about uh, Magic's own like IP and world building and, and and that sort of thing." I'm not really concerned about that for two reasons. One. Um Contract negotiations are a mess and only get messier once you've demonstrated that you have a successful product. Um, like this is the, the Netflix problem, right? Where it's like, okay, well, Netflix was able to get all this stuff super cheap the first however many years of its existence. And then it became a giant fiasco. And like, at some point you're like, your universe is beyond content runs out because other people start getting the idea that it's worth something more than it is. And like, you have to know you're on a clock there. And then the other half of it is that, like, maybe you can name four other properties that are uh, as of, like as good as the Marvel property and available. But like, I can <laughs> name the six. You just you run out so fast. It is really astounding. And like, it, once you produce your sixth Marvel set, like also that that content dries up. I don't know like how many people are here for. I uh, I don't know the versus system. Like, if you look at some of those sets beyond the first five. I mean, it is cool that I, like, I guess I know who the Checkmate characters are, despite having never read a comment. I, I don't think you get the same uh, level of uh, integration as you would off of, you know, you can't make the fifth Iron Man set and have the same hit level. I, don't, I just, I think it's just self-exhausting in a in a fashion that uh, it, it's not capable of assuming the entire production run. 
maybe the bigger issue there that is the the goal that this is meant to accomplish where if you set this incredibly ambitious goal for growing the game by whatever uh possibly disingenuous metrics uh you're using for that uh then the the natural scaling of the game just kind of uh runs out of room at some point and so you have to be doing things like this you have to go bigger and better you have to reinvent the wheel every so often and you have to just be releasing this constant deluge of products uh, to, to try and keep up with the demand that you think you're creating in order to to reach those numbers and i guess if these sets end up also failing at that goal then maybe there's just some larger question about the fate of the game more broadly uh if they don't take a step back and reevaluate there sticking on the the marvel topic for now do you have any kind of uh, aesthetic uh concern or i do think that like the concept of captain america on a magic card is extremely weird but like mostly because of like i i they, just, like, the complete real-world crossover stuff is just, like, very weird to me. And it's just like, oh, here's just, like, an American flag on my Magic card, and it's just going to be in play. I, that that part is the thing that's weird to me. Uh, I mean, if you just want to go to, like, the obvious one, like, if you made a Harry Potter set, you would not make Strixhaven. Could you have made a, like, magic-setting superhero set that you can no longer make because of Marvel? And that's kind of interesting to me, but, like, not super interesting just because, like, it is very, very hit or miss creating um, superhero properties on the, like uh, so much of that is like the design of 800 characters. And like, I don't know, you see that in Planeswalker design where like, OK, so we've got like five good ones. But like, what, you know, Teo, like she like who, who cares about him? Like Marvel has created, you know, they've gone through this iteration and like. Their like 50 really popular characters are the result of iterating through 500 different Teos that you just don't have to worry about the development cycle on. Whereas with like, you know, Strixhaven and Harry Potter, it's just like, I, no, no one cares about any, like, it's just like make a cool wizard school and you've accomplished the entire goal. And you, you can do that in your own way really easy because it's just one yeah, thing. Yeah, it does rub me the wrong way when people try to conflate every kind of real world reference or tie-in uh as if it's basically just all the, the same kind of idea and the differences in scope uh and so if you're okay with bazaar of baghdad you know re referencing like an actual real world place being print printed within the first year or two of magic then there's really no principled argument you can make about uh captain america or the the literal devil we have now in magic thanks to uh the, the beast and the in the doctor who sets and all of that stuff i to me it's not just you know you have some like a uh, spectrum of realism where uh you can stake out some extreme position over here or some moderate position here and uh really the the difference between bazaar of baghdad and the beast is just you know there there are slightly different points on that line i think there is a categorical difference of sorts where a lot of the uh, the stuff that was bound up in uh early uh top down design or inspiration from either real world uh historical events or just uh you know classic uh mythology and, and so on a lot of that was stuff which felt like it could be grounded in some kind of high fantasy setting if you were designing that plane uh, or that world from the ground up i think a lot of the the mirage stuff did this very well uh, a lot of the arabian night stuff even uh, back when they were much less practiced at doing that so i felt i think that's a a good achievement in its own right and so you know I, to me that is 
almost uh, a success of design as opposed to, well, here are the, the 12 different doctors and their companions. And that, that's fine for what it is, I think. I don't really care too much about that. But to me, you are doing two different things. There. I think it's uh, a little unfair to just lump that together. And if, you ha- if you're okay with any one part of it, then you have to be okay with, with everything in there. That's totally fair, but I do want to highlight something, which is that I think that um, it's very important that in the Doctor Who set, they did a huge, like, they had an entire villain deck, and, like, that is a huge piece of it that I think that they missed uh, pretty hard on in the D&D set, where they tried to focus it on, like, I don't know, the the characters in that set are completely useless. I'm just, like, going to start there. Like, there's, Minsk and Boo wasn't even in the main set, right? Like, there wasn't, like, I can't, I don't know. Anyways... Like, this is the beholder problem I always cite. And it feels like in Doctor Who they did that right. And it's like you are creating, like, the enemy characters and not, like, worrying about arguing who your player character is. Like, that's just built into the setting. Like, you get to make a Sabretooth card and, like, all this other stuff of, like, whatever you name your favorite villain. And, like, they all just create unique – I don't know. I, I think the IP just, like, suits itself really well to uh, creating a very layered and, like, well-done magic set. I, I don't know. Yeah, I know uh, there have been tales from the, the Versus system days, which is essentially designing a game around basically this IP where there's this really tough balance to strike where you can't just uh, line up, these are the most prominent characters and therefore their cards have to be the best cards, but then you also really need to avoid the opposite uh, timeline of uh, I think Dr. Light uh, is the example that was brought up, but uh, the, the people more yes. steeped in versus system can can weigh in here, but you also don't want it's- the like the broken cards to just be like some guy who is some tertiary character, if best, in the actual IP itself. Yeah, I mean, the two best cards in that game were Dr. Light and Ahmed Samsara. Don't ask me who either of those characters actually is. I guess this does sort of ruin the, like, I don't know what the exact title for these are, but, like, the the reskin Universes Beyond uh, Secret Layers. Like, if they made a Knight of the Reliquary that was Ahmed Samsara, which is, like, a throwback, to, it, it was just Knight of the Reliquary, was just what the card did. Um, but, like, that would have been cool, but, like, that would appeal to, like, all of three people, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Sure. And I think more broadly, if uh, these were new magic cards that were then brought under the umbrella of magic IP in some way, like they did with the the Walking Dead cards eventually, where if you want to play uh, Rick in Legacy, there is a version with some kind of in-universe name now that isn't just Rick. If that was just the standard practice for all of these uh, sets, I think you you would get far fewer uh, complaints there. And that that's one issue that we have with this Marvel set uh, over a year out at this point is we don't know uh, who gets to ignore this and who is forced to engage with it. So if this is the kind of set which uh, is only going to be showing up in Commander and then only if uh, the, the table in their you know little sit-down session beforehand all, all agrees on that, then fine. But if this is a uh, modern legal set in the way that the Lord of the Rings set was, then I can't just put my finger in my ears and pretend these cards don't exist. Like I, someone is going to be playing you know, Spider-Man against me and I, I have to deal with that one way or another. Um, so I, I think the way that is managed uh, and responded to is going to inform a lot of this. And then aesthetically like to me i've always had bigger problems in a way with things which are like smuggled into magic worlds as top-down designs but very clearly are just derivative of whatever the source material is so uh a crow and horse is my my go-to example here where like yeah i I get the joke but (laughs) okay great congratulations um and to me that almost feels more uncanny valley in a way than oh yeah we we took uh 
you know the Doctor Who franchise, and now we are making those characters as magic cards. But it's the the, the segmentation there is much clearer to me. Um, whereas a lot of the stuff which is you know based on something else, but in a way where that that line is a little more blurred. To, I I have bigger problems with that if it feels like it's kind of a careless or phoned in. Um, and then the whole thing about the marvelization of magic. I I, I get the the larger objection people have to just uh, Marvel as a franchise taking over everything and what that means for just uh, other IPs too, where there's there's this knock-on effect where everything just becomes uh, like uh, a pale imitation of, of Marvel. Um, I get that concern, but I feel like that ship has already sailed in a magic context where I remember Oath of the Gatewatch, right? I remember this whole move in the story and the card design uh, that was informed by that. There was very clearly a reaction to that era's uh success of you know marvel and also other you know like dc uh, other superhero stuff as well and that's something which that was a mainstream standard release whatever uh format of magic you engage with you were seeing the cards that were designed with that move in mind um and i think it did have an impact on not just the the story which i think that was definitely a move uh for the worse but also the design of the cards in a way that had knock-on effects through probably through at least War of the Spark, and that, that, that set off this whole thing in its own right. So I feel like we've all already seen the worst of what that could be in Magic, and I, it was pretty bad in a lot of ways, but I, I struggle to see this being worse than that was in retrospect. Yeah, well, so I have two things. The quick one is that actually, aside, so the, if you actually look at the storyline that they followed to like do the Avengers thing in Magic, it's really just the bookends that sucked. Like, the BFC story was trash. And the War of the Spark story was bad, but everything in the middle was really good. Um, but I have a question for you going back to you mentioning the Akroan horse. Do you have the same problem with the Akroan war or is it just the horse? Uh, the, the horse is the one that I, I guess I, I've had an additional like decade at this point to object to that. Uh, the Akroan war, I think it's it, it comes from an era of car design where you expect cars to do all of these different things and it's easy for that to just blur together for me as a more normal magic card which yeah it's a little hard to pass but once you play with it in game it gets like very tricky and intricate and at that point i've lost track of well yeah th this part of chapter two is meant to reference this event in the iliad or something uh, whereas the acroan horse like it kind of slaps you in the face with exactly what it is trying to be and i guess it succeeds at doing that but it's for a very different audience I can understand that because I I have the same feeling too. And I didn't know if you had the same kind, like a, a reason for it. And I guess that makes sense as a starting point. Yeah, I think with a lot of, especially the aesthetic uh, objections to these, you're not going to get this degree of logical consistency that you would with, you know, the... Uh, the, the cold-hearted business argument for doing any of these things, or if we're talking about the strategic ins and outs of some card choice or deck choice or whatever, that's something which can and should be logically tested in a way that uh, if someone says, eh, I, it feels kind of weird to me when uh, you know they print a card that has this art that looks like it could never possibly come from, from uh, a magic set, I'm not going to ask them to give some like, what is a chair style definition of what does magic art look like to you? I just take that objection for what it is and if enough people are saying that then there probably is something there even if it's kind of hard to tease out what that something is uh sometimes yeah yeah this is much more um a uh a, a you know a, <laughs> a supreme court i know when i'll see or i'll know it when i see it <laughs> yes. or whatever uh kind of thing uh yeah and i along those lines i was just thinking through the scenario of like what if the one ring was the affinity the infinity gauntlet and i think everyone would feel worse about that 
Yeah, and to me, the the reason the Lord of the Rings set kind of uh, hit the right notes is that that is a setting which you could imagine if you had never read the, the Lord of the Rings books or seen the movies, if that just appeared out of the ether as a new magic set, you wouldn't necessarily know that something was amiss. Whereas a lot of the uh, more adventurous uh, IP tie-ins, it's like, yeah, I, I don't know what this is. I, I've somehow never, never heard of the Marvel franchise, but I know it's not a magic plane. I know something uh, else is going on here. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, again, if this goes back to my issues with current design are not related to either of these two issues. They are, they have other sources that I am still trying to find the right ways to like discuss as a whole, but like, these are fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on that note, uh, any any other uh, takes that you've been holding in for the past few weeks that you've just been burning to get out there on some platform or another? Uh, I mean, not, I mean, you know, I was in Europe. I was in several places. Europe is still good. You know, it's been uh, four years since I've been there. So I was, you know, there on a vacation and then visiting some family. Um, advice, don't travel from Italy to Berlin. Uh, it's just like a very jarring culture shock. It's just like, oh. This is just like a place where like people are significantly like more chill and everything is like old to like, yeah, so the city was destroyed a hundred years ago. Everything is a monument to sadness for good reason. Uh, and like the local food culture is like choose a group that immigrated here and eat their food. It's very weird. Um, so so is Italy or Germany the, uh, the, the Marvel universe of, of this analogy? <laughs> you know, I don't... I haven't thought about that, and uh, hmm. and, and you won't have to because we have a lot of magic cards to talk about. Moving swiftly on, so yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, Lost Caverns of Ixland. We are returning to uh, Ixland after a few years away, and th- this is part of what seems to be this larger trend of uh, we're revisiting our failures from the first time around and trying to do them right. So you could argue, uh, I-, I I will defend. OG Kamigawa in some ways, even once I take my nostalgia goggles off, but I think Neon Dynasty was a good blueprint for uh, how that can work. And I think uh, with Wilds of Eldraine, uh, After the Throne of Eldraine, and now Lost Caverns of Ixland as well, I think they may have found a good formula for some of these settings which I think flavor-wise and concept-wise were pretty cool, but the actual uh, car design uh, really let them down. I think they've shown that they can breathe new life into those worlds and sometimes into those old uh, mechanics or, or themes as well and actually make them work. And it's kind of almost nice to see that as opposed to going back to old reliable with another Ravnica set or another Ixland set or uh, another Innistrad set, excuse me, or uh, something like that. Yeah, this set looks... I, I like it. I mean, the thing that they've done the best with these two sets is kind of take... Um, like they look at the old set and they look at what worked and what didn't. And then they basically abandon everything that like they allow themselves one card from the things that didn't work just so that people are happy that they're like one hand size matters card made to the set, which I, I actually don't even think that one did, which anyways, good riddance to that. Uh, <laughs> but like, and then lean into the things that people really liked, which is like, Oh, we're still going to have a bunch of dinosaurs. We're going to have like three merfolk because people like merfolk, but we can't make a merfolk set because it went bad. And like, I, I think that they are doing a fine job, like, with the setting, with this set, and, like, leaning into, um, just, like, there's a lot of ground to cover with it, and it, yeah, it's really well done. I, I don't have a lot of complaints about it. The thing that's kind of, actually, the thing that's kind of astonishing to me is that this is, like, an artifact graveyard theme set, and it feels very measured and interesting still, which is, it's kind of funny, like, when you look at the past artifact sets, like, Kaladesh and Mirrodin specifically, 
one of the things that's really notable beyond the fact that they were broken as hell is that, like, the 40th best rare in the set is just, like, gonna make you think about it for a solid day um, and just be like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? And they, it feels like they've captured that without accidentally doing the artifact set, like, we made some broken cards overrate thing. Yeah, it is weird how we have had in the past few years some sets that were explicitly tied into artifacts uh so our brother's war of course but also neon dynasty and so on and then a lot of the more mainstream standard sets have also just had a bunch of cool artifacts as well or they've had some kind of artifact sub theme that ties into that too so i know talking to uh, a friend of the show lee mcleod about uh building artifact cubes and so on we were both waiting with bated breath last year for the Brothers War to come out because we knew that was going to be an absolute goldmine uh, for uh, for that idea. But it turns out that most of the sets uh, across that time frame, uh, except Sheets of New Capenna, which really had nothing for anybody, most of the other sets uh, just had a ton of that stuff as well. And so even by the time we got to the Brothers War, a lot of those gaps had been filled and then that set really picked up the torch and ran with it too. And this one feels uh like it's in that same space but this is this is not an artifact set this is not the next kaladesh or brothers war or so on but uh it would not surprise me if uh cards from this set end up pushing some kind of artifact theme deck over the line in uh in various constructed formats it feels like historically for artifacts they're like not that out of place because like if you read some of the artifacts from mirrodin they just say a million words because they do weird stuff and like this is more of the same so it's it leans into modern design trends without really feeling mm-hmm. like overkill. And then touching on the mechanics quickly. So we do have uh, a, recurring, a returning mechanic of sorts in the form of Explore. So uh, Explore itself is on a lot of cards in the set. And then the the latest uh, trinket in the vein of blood tokens and clues and treasures and, and what have you are map tokens. Uh, so these are artifacts that have the ability one tap, sacrifice this, uh, target creature you control explores and you can only do this as a sorcery. And it's not up to one target creature it is target creature so that ability can fizzle and if you don't have a creature uh, to target with it then you can't just cash it in uh, for the sake of it so uh, I I always like these little trinkets and thinking how to build around those how to just get incidental uses out of those and then really into them uh, as well I'm not sure about this exact implementation really because even though I like the explore mechanic it is a little weird and hard to pass at the outset and now you almost have that mechanic nested inside this other game object where uh you have to kind of know what explore does and then there there are weird interactions with other mechanics in the set and how they line up with uh uh, both explore and then map token specifically as well so in the context here like it it makes sense and it's flavorful i just don't know uh what i'm going to feel about them in practice yet yeah i also in kind of in the same camp of like well I, i got a game with it and figure it out i I have high hopes. I think that the this is one of the token types that I kind of appreciate the most as a token. And like on one end you have like food, which is just a goober, and like you aren't supposed to actually use it for the ability. And this feels like it's pushing on the other side of that with like um I think previously probably the winner for like you're just supposed to use this for the game text would be disturbed tokens. Um, which like were often best used just getting them into combat once at some point, like a, like a pseudo burn spell. And this feels like it's in the same camp, maybe like somewhere between that and blood, because I think that, um, explore, like 
the issue with let's let's look at like the the two similar things, which are probably blood and clues, which are the the goober tokens that interact at the top of your library. Um, with clues, your bottleneck is mana always. Like if you have ever like it's the dual purpose of like I am cracking the clue and it's putting a card into my hand and that's going to cost me mana and then my other clues are like you just never get to use them all. Like no one has ever like if you ever kill your opponent with a tireless tracker and don't control a clue like. Maybe you exactly burned them out by putting a counter on it. Like, I, I don't really know what happened. Like, this doesn't have that just because it costs one, but also um, it doesn't put spells into your hand, which is pushing back to my idea of, like, things that I do not like about modern day design. I think that um, the ability that, like, provides value but doesn't put spells into your hand is very important uh, in uh, pushing the game away from, like, kind of the, like, mono-white mid-range mess of last year and, like, making sure that you don't have those kind of game plans happen at the same degree. Just because the thing that complicates Magic games the most is, like, spells begetting more spells and then you never run out of options and, like, this is the Hearthstone problem where, like, if every turn you draw a spell, like, I don't know, you, you just never reach a point where a player doesn't take a game action and therefore the only thing that matters is, like, game actioning harder and like not any kind of other it's just it's just not the best gameplay for magic and not the best gameplay for the engine but like map tokens interact pretty well with that and it's pretty good that like they're in a spot where you'll get to use basically all of them and make decisions and then if you compare them to blood you also have this thing where like blood tokens like you could just have a perfect like it's the classic like do you loot it's like well you, you don't rummage like you just have a hand of all good stuff and then you don't use the blood token and you're like why do i have it um with maps, you just kind of use them for the most part. Uh, like, maybe you wait a turn on it, but, like, you kind of just want to use them all. Like, I, I think that it's a, just a really well-designed token. Um, yeah, yeah. Big fan. we, we do up. live in a world where there are more spell-like lands than ever before between uh, your Beseju and that cycle and the Triomes and now the Man Lands, which we have a great cycle of those in this set to, uh, to get to as well. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in that space where it is pretty hard to actually flood out uh, in Magic these days and much easier to justify playing what 10, 15 years ago would have been seen as a much higher land count than, uh, than you should. Although some of that is just people didn't play enough lands back then. But now it's even easier to talk yourself into t taking a list you see online, cutting the worst spell and adding a land. And that probably is a correct move in the abstract. And there are a lot of uh, spell lands that you can uh, use that philosophy with. But uh, as you say, I think the, the fact that you're not just making material which in turn automatically gets you more cards and then those turn into more material uh that, that is the just uh the, the pattern of basically every other facet of design over the past few years so finding a a trinket like mac tokens which yeah, can tie into that to some degree but doesn't do that as a guarantee is pretty nice actually and that that's the thing that makes map tokens a little weaker i would say than a lot of those other recent comparisons but also maybe more satisfying to have around where you you know when you crack a clue kind of what you're signing up for ditto with blood tokens you don't know what the random card you're going to draw is necessarily but you kind of know the the cost that you're investing there and you're going to get some kind of output in the form of a random card out of it and then of course like if you're uh using treasure using food like that that is a deterministic outcome in a way and with map tokens there will be a lot of spots where uh it's not just a random card like the the outcome of hitting a land is very different from the outcome of hitting a spell and then uh maybe you care about that additional point of 
uh, power or toughness if you hit the spell. Maybe you don't. And then you have this question of, let's say you have a bunch of map tokens uh, stored up. Do you keep a weak spell on top so that you're guaranteed to get that power buff each time? And then maybe send it away on the last explore or do you try and aim higher and then get however much extra power you need while also digging towards a better spell for for next turn so there's a lot of stuff like that which i think makes the gameplay with them a lot more dynamic versus uh yeah like blood tokens as an example where it's almost if you're not using them that's a great problem to have because your hand is great and uh the, the moment you draw the the first fatal push against your blue eye control opponent well you know exactly what you're sending away um whereas map token says there's a lot more to it uh, than that yeah and i think the one other thing that you didn't mention that i guess sort of combines a point that you brought up and a point that you brought up way earlier which is like you are activating a map token into open mana what creature are you targeting are you targeting the like it is very contextual whether you target your 2-2 and try to outsize your opponent's creature with it when they could just, you know, stomp or some other equivalent removal spell and completely blow you out. Or do you target the big thing where the counter might not matter or, like, you lose that to, like, a Doomblade effect? Like, I think that sub-decision is going to be really interesting just to play out over the course of, these like, these tokens' existence. So, yeah, thumbs up, A-plus on this mechanic. Uh it's like stupid and obvious and it's just going to play way better than anyone Yeah, it, it does uh, make it a lot easier to interact with the stuff that is making the map tokens as well. So there's this issue with cards like uh, Thraven Inspector, Bribe Bridge Tracker, e- even stuff like Blood Tithe Harvester where you, at some point you feel obliged to one for one that card with your removal spell but then that that thing that rectangle is left over and they can cash it in for some fraction of an additional card or if it's a clue token just outright cash it in for an additional card with the map token you know if they make the map and then try and use the map on the thing that made the map token you can actually get a clean one for one there and then you have this larger layer to it of well do i wait for them to try and do that before i remove it do i use my mana efficiently maybe at the end of their turn um and then from the the map maker side well it's yeah do i try and load up stuff on my otherwise weaker creature in case they do have a removal spell or do i save it for something which you know if it gets the 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 counter from explore like that's going to be a more meaningful buff so there's a lot of contextual stuff going on there which i think makes it play a lot better from both directions and i think that the fact that it is a little weaker in the abstract than your clues or your bloods or so on you can print more cards which are uh stronger normally and then have this extra trinket tacked on uh in a way that maybe you couldn't in the same way with 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 clues or with blood so there's the uh the three mana three four vigilance in the set which when it etbs or attacks uh it makes makes a map token and that's one of the better cards in the set i think and i think the best map maker by a lot of metrics but hard to imagine being able to do that with a clue or blood or really any other kind of fungible game object that's just tireless tracker, but for maps. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, and we may get to that card a bit later, but I guess going through the other mechanics, um, like, what do you, let's go to the next. Cause I think that the map tokens being a slam dunk might not, um, correspond to all of those. I, I do want to, I guess, push against the grain. And I want to say that I think that the use of descend in this set is, um, I guess the verdict is out whether I think Descend ends up working or is good. But I think that the thing everyone complains about is like, what type of Descent is this? Or I think that's stupid and overblown. Like, you know what a historic permanent is. Like, this is no, like, this is easier. Like, it's not hard. Like, it's just permanence in graveyard. 
It's all tied together. Like, you know, it's like, oh, I descended this turn. That's a thing. Descend number. Fathomless descent. I have to count. Like, it's not, it's not complicated once you've read it five times. I think that that's like a big thing that I think people get wrapped up in a lot. And something this set also does well with complexity is that if something's complicated the first time you read it, but then like once someone tells you what it does, you don't have to worry about it. Like you just know what it does. That's a lot better than the reverse of like the card has eight abilities and they're completely incongruent and you have no idea what it does. So like um, in the same boat, there's the card, which is like a giant algebra equation on like what happens depending on what your creature's power is. Like what was the oh, green God, white cat yeah. legend? Is someone just... It's, you you read the card and you're like, what the heck is this? And then someone tells you what it does once and it's just like, oh, yeah, if the thing got pumped in any way, it gets pumped equal to that pump. And you're like, oh, that's easy. I don't have to worry about what the heck this impenetrable line of text does. But like, I, I think the Sen has a lot of that same vibe of like, people complain about it because they've read the card once and then like a week into the set, no one will care. Um, overall, like I, you know, Delirium as mechanics, I'm a big fan of. I, I am cautious on descend as a mechanic just because so i guess undergrowth actually let's point exactly to undergrowth because it wasn't permanence but it was creatures i think that cards that specifically push you away from instants and sorceries counting to your graveyard mechanics like obviously the problem is that the instants and sorceries naturally subsidize them so it's hard to properly scale power level on cards but when you do that the gameplay becomes kind of monotonous um and you just end up in a world where like your deck is just like creatures and necrotals. And I, I don't love that for descend. I don't, I don't think that's a, like a great thing, but like, I'll just have to play with the actual cards to know how bad that is. But, um, it, this, this is not delirium. Delirium is a way better mechanic than descend, but like, I'm fine with it working in the same space with the expectation of it being less impressive as a mechanic. We do have the uh, adventures from Wars of Drain bridging that gap a little bit, where many of them, they are technically uh, permanents of some kind, but then they have some instant or sorcery speed effect that lets you uh, do what a spell like that should be doing, so you'll pick up pranksters and that kind of thing, uh, so you can kind of cheat the count in that way. I was going to be one of those people complaining about... Uh, the the various uh, descend mechanics in this set so i will try and present the the best version of that here so i think descend a as a keyword ability as a mechanic in its own right is is fine we'll circle back to that in a second but the fact that you on top of the the time sensitive did something get into my graveyard this turn of the the, the main descend mechanic and then you also have these three different ability words it's two in the set you have like descend four descend eight those are basically the same thing so descend n and then also fathomless descent where uh descend n just uh counts the number of permanents in your graveyard and then that's a, a yes or no condition and then fathomless descent uh, is more flexible based on the count so you know, there's the aura which uh when it etbs you you mill two and then the enchanted permanent gets minus x minus zero and uh, so that that's the use of uh fathomless descent the fact that like one of these is did something happen this turn and then you have not even another mechanic but it's a, an ability word which already exists in this weird like uh rules understanding space um but especially now that there is also a mechanic that like a literal mechanic that has the same word and one of those is a a timeless just count and do and do you have uh, enough and then you have this like more open-ended one as well maybe if they all had different names my reaction would be different but the fact that all of that is bundled up together and 
if someone just says, oh yeah, this card has to send, you do actually need to ask follow-up questions about, okay, which of these like 2.5 different things is it? That actually does matter a lot for your evaluation of the card. And those checks uh, play out differently. So I, I could easily imagine um, someone, maybe early on in whatever format it is, you play with... Um, a card which has one of those versions of descend but you're used to the other one and so you're you're getting some bonus even though you didn't descend this turn in the way that your card actually checks for or uh you know you you think it's all about the uh descend count as opposed to did you descend y slash n I, I don't know i think there's a lot of confusion and perhaps unnecessary confusion around that which is just the cost of doing business and uh, most sets these days are confusing in some way like that but it just feels a little kind of uh unnecessarily risky in that regard for me well i will give you that uh if you like looked at billable hours spent in the waltzy offices on whether to use descend x or fathomless descent it's probably just like one of those things where if they could look back at the number they'd regret the discussions they had whether the answer should be descend x or fathomless descent but i actually think that the another mechanic from this is a bigger offender on all of these metrics i think craft is horrific i have read every craft card in the set I got to the 30th one before I realized it crafted with dinosaurs. I'm just not reading them again. Like, I don't want to go back and figure out, like, the, the, it is so bad. Like, you just look at the text and half of the text on the card is that this is just garbage reminder text. And you have to, like, search for, like, the one word about what this specific one crafts with. Like, it is so bad. Like, just, just make it consistent. Like, the fact that they're like, this one crafts with a cave, and this one crafts with a dinosaur, but then all eight of these craft with some number of artifacts. Just like, I don't, I don't want, like, this is the example I was talking about, where I'm going to have to read the freaking card every single time to know what it crafts. Like, this is horrific. And, like, the, the other problem is, like, half of these cards, like, they're not designed with the intent of you crafting them, honestly. Like, they're designed as, like, uh, you know, a Gideon's approach that you cast... And then maybe you craft it. Like, what? I don't know. I just, what, what? Why? Just why? Yeah. This, I, this mechanic is bad. I hate so, it. So I, I like the, I, I think the heart is kind of in the right place with craft. I like these little subquests that they get to send you on. And I like that you have to craft with a specific thing and it costs you, uh, it, it, that cost can be pretty flexible. And so you can target it at uh, this exact uh, requirement. That said, I think the the nature of craft, where it's either crafting with permanents you control or with just whatever it checks for from the graveyard, those are two very different things to have to do. And almost always, one of those is going to be much easier than the other. Uh, and which of those it is, is up for debate, but uh, depending on context. But it's kind of difficult to balance around having that be either or, because one of those is going to be uh, much easier. And so either if you cost it too low, well, one of those just is happening much more often than, than you want it to be. Like, it's getting crafted much more frequently or easily than you, you ideally want it to. Or you kind of set it too high because of that one thing, but then that sets the bar so high that the other craft condition basically never gets met in practice. Uh, so balancing around that, I think, is... It, it seems tricky. Uh, I will probably be taking this set off in limited terms, but I, I'm keen to hear how it plays out in in that environment but just passing the cards so i think it's it's easier in the sense of once you know what craft does as a mechanic you you look at like the mana cost and you look at the crafting condition and you 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 then can fill in the gap for yourself but actually passing what craft does on the card was weirdly difficult for me at, at first reading because um there's, there seems to be this odd typesetting thing in some of them where it, it almost reads like uh, these different abilities have been spliced together in a way where you have to like uh, 
backtrack on yourself to understand what the card is saying. And then some of them, uh, the the craft clause goes for so long that they have to cut words off to fit it in. So it's stuff like, uh, you know, the two crafted uh, do this or uh, stuff like that, which just in English doesn't really read that well. And uh, there, there are languages where I think that would be easier or God forbid harder. Like if, if you uh, if you ever end up going back to Germany, we'll, we'll see how crafting goes over there. But um, it, it seems like it just, it doesn't read elegantly. And I, I hope it's the kind of thing which plays better than it reads. But that at this point, that would be a low bar for me. Sunbird Standard is the one that sets me off the most. This is the three mana mana rock that has the ability craft with one or more five. Like, what? Yes. What the, <laughs> yeah. Like, what, 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 what are more? Like, you have to read the reminder text to tell you what one or more is. And then you're like, oh, artifact. And then you get to the back, it's like, no, colors. And you're, you're like, what the? Like, this is the, I think this might have been the one where I figured it out. Because the fact where it's like craft with one or more, my brain just auto-filled artifact. And they got to the back and asked about colors. And I'm like, how many colors of artifacts? And then it's like, what what the hell did I just read? Like I I don't know. I this mechanic is I get like the desire to make a fixed meld, but like just make meld. Meld like does a very specific job. It did that job really well in the Brothers War. Just like this this did not fix it. This made it worse. Like I mean I, I don't know. Maybe it's a noble effort, but like whatever. No. Nah. I, I think uh so I think the good craft designs craft uses a role there that other mechanics in that space couldn't really and so you, you kind of need to go to these lengths but there are also designs which like we got to fill out the file and so we let's make some more craft cards which craft feels like it's using a lot of words and a lot of space to not really do anything uh and it, it also ties into the issue that you had with a lot of the neon dynasty sagas where it's okay there's there's a lot going here uh on the card and then you turn it over and there's a whole separate face on the back where there's still a lot going on and it feels like it doesn't actually relate in a lot of ways to what's going on on the front side. And so there's just a a lot to to process there. And yeah, a lot of the, the craft cards, it's like, well, I, I jumped through a bunch of hoops to do this thing. And then I unlock something which really does not seem like it ties in to me doing that thing. And then the, the cards on the other side where, yeah, the, the front half pushes you uh, in this one direction and then once you craft it, you kind of get just this additional payoff for doing that same thing. That That's cool and all, but uh, then you start to think, well, could this have been like consolidated down into uh, something a little simpler? Um, and then there, there's additional weirdness sometimes where there are some of these cards which tap to craft and then they craft into, let's say, a land or something which needs to tap to do anything, um, which then you're waiting a turn to unlock it, but then the cards which craft into something else right away can like be active immediately so there's additional weirdness like that where just taken in aggregate the craft cards they're kind of all over the place even if uh some of these specific designs i have a lot of time for yeah yeah that is a good review of the mechanic um moving on to one that's maybe simpler uh discover as fixed cascade my initial reaction was very negative i do not like cascade as a mechanic uh existing just because it very much promotes just like it's the epitome of like two for one, but also battlefield two for one. Um, and I, I really didn't like the whole thing where you could opt out of casting the card and put it into your hand on first read. And then I think there was one card that has like some weird activated ability where you can get to, uh, discover like based on conditions and like repeatably and stuff. And like, I kind of got the point of like why you would want to do that if it's like, 
not when you cast a spell, but, like, when you are performing onboard game actions that, like, yeah, it's nice to have that. I'm still kind of down on the mechanic existing, but, like, I can appreciate more the, like, you know, I I like the fact that Cascade made you think about when to cast your Bloodbright Elf. I don't love that you can just, like, bank a Terminate off of it, and you're like, well, I'm just getting Shriek Mod forever. Like, what the hell? Um, but, yeah, I don't it, know. It's like, if you're finding ways to mitigate the inherent randomness of the mechanic then why are we doing the mechanic isn't that part of the point like isn't you know you you have the upside of you spin the wheel and you hit something awesome but taken within that is yeah sometimes i my bloodbraid elf hits a terminate with no targets and that that's the experience that i signed up for whereas if you you raise the floor then psychologically i think you also lower the ceiling at the same time um in terms of fixed cascade if that's even a coherent concept at all it really stands out that they're paying attention to how much these cards cost and then the discover uh, N value as well. I mean, D- discover N is broken, as any vintage player will know. But uh, <laughs> D- like, if you look at the discover numbers in this set, you don't get below discover three. And that's on the, uh, the, the kind of blood radar equivalent at four mana, like when it ETBs, if you cast it, discover three. Um, but that's that's the lowest you can get, really, um, at least in uh, the main set. And so, yeah, you, you don't get any Charlotte's Agent equivalents or even just like an Ardent Plea where, uh, yeah, it basically does nothing except Cascading, but that's all you you cared about uh, in the first place. You either have Cascade as a part of a larger and more expensive package, but in a way where you can't just, you know, rig the deck so that you're getting Living End or Crouching Footfalls every time. So in that sense, it is fixed Cascade. Um you can question philosophically, though, if that's even something you you can do or should want to do there. Yeah, I mean, looking at the cards that have been previewed so far, I don't have any... I think they were very careful in good ways with all of them, with the exception of the, like, what if we made Bloodbright Elf again, but it didn't have haste? And, like, that one, I just... Like, I don't know why you would do that, but, like, I guess there's equity in the nostalgia. That, I don't know. I It just probably pretty easy to put your time into testing whether this card is broken because all like the, the world of blood right off is very explored this is not like um this is not like oh i'd have to see how powerful this new mechanic is this is just very much a let me create the same things that broke blood right off the first time and made it so miserable for everyone and then we just get to test those and see how bad it is and like if it's not that bad you just ship the card maybe that's fine yeah, you know the day one assignment uh, in whatever the equivalent of the uh, Future Future League is called now was build a deck around Cascade uh, or Discover that is meant to be pushing the envelope as hard as possible and then we see just how much we need to rein it in. And wherever it started, it seemed like it ended up in a good place at least. I do think Discover also fixes one of the issues you brought up with Cascade of this inherent two for one where uh, a card like Bloodbraid Elf just the way that Cascade functions when you cast the card means you get the Cascade and then you get whatever the original card is. And if you're not doing that, like if it is just a violent outburst or ardent plea where you care about the Cascade and very little about the spell itself, well, that's just a problem in its own right. Uh, whereas here, you you have much more flexibility in how you trigger the Discover in the first place. So there's a uh, four mana... I th- I think it's uncommon, but this set symbol makes it really hard to tell sometimes, uh, where when it attacks, you can tap two things, and if you do, you discover three. So that's a really cool goal to try and chase. And if you unlock it, you don't know what that's going to be. You get to like open the, the present and find out, and that's where the, the randomness really does elevate the card. But also, sometimes you play your 4-4 and they kill it, and it's a clean 1-for-1. One one. 
as opposed to the the Bloodbraid Elf experience or Batumnus Blast or some of the other hits from back in the day. Yeah, I, I think that is exactly the card that I was referring to when I said there was a card that made me appreciate the mechanic, and it's it's the gold uncommon. Yes, which I, I don't know if that's meant to be like the build around signpost uncommon for the set or not, but uh, either way, good good advertisement for what is possible uh, with that mechanic. I, I want to just circle back quickly to the descend uh, or descends plural of it all, where uh, I think that you you have stuff like delirium or conditions that operate in a similar space and all of these have this issue to some degree but the fact that once you get to uh modern in particular it's like oh great another mechanic that you just turn on automatically with fetch lands and mistress bobble and stuff like how original right like as if that uh that play pattern uh needed to be juiced any further but past a certain point you you kind of have to blame those cards and not the like the vast way of design uh design space which they just kind of uh, account for uh for free yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I agree. You're kind of priced in uh, there. Like, whatever. We had, like it. You just live with it. That the fetchlands oh. are something you just kind of live with. Okay, th- this reminded me actually of an issue I do have with this end, which is it cares about permanent cards specifically. So this is actually an important oh, yeah. PSA for limited in particular. So. Uh, tokens going to the graveyard will not trigger descent. Uh, so with the the map tokens in this set, it gets kind of funky because the map token being sacrificed will not trigger descent. But then with explore, if the explore puts a permanent in your graveyard from that, then that will trigger descent. Um, so you can have this map token and have to like weigh up the odds in real time of it actually turning on your other card, which I guess is fine but that that's another place where if you don't know the joke there going into it it can really trip you up and and lead to some sour experience maybe and especially when uh and i guess if i'm complaining about it being so free to turn on cascade in or turn on a descend in larger formats then this has to be true but uh in a world where you have blood tokens treasure tokens so on and so forth uh littering the board at all times then that is an important thing uh, an important trap to to not uh launch yourself into yeah i guess maybe now is just a good time to get the uh the elephant out of the room and just talk about molten collapse and like what the hell is this card <laughs> okay <laughs> so this is the i mean if you play modern you have seen this card this is the rakdos sorcery that is Choose one or both if you descended, aka crack to fetch this turn. Uh, destroy a creature or planeswalker, or destroy target non-creature, non-land permanent with mana value one or less. I why like why is Rakdos getting the ability to destroy like the most important enchantments in the formats where this card is going to be the most active? Like how often is that destroy ability going to come up in like? standard or pioneer probably not often i do keep forgetting that you could just fire this off on their cigar aid on turn two and like why like i just i don't really understand why this card exists it's gonna be really really good like um i've already started thinking about vintage champs and the idea that like i don't know if you're allowed to like control a creature and a mox at the same time if this card becomes a staple of the metagame like what like what the hell like why why is um uh, grasp of rune, a two mana, two mana sorcery. I mean, vintage is not like a real format to consider, but like, I, that's just like a, a small portion of the whole package here. Yeah. A cosine vintage being a fake format, but it's one where just casting this card up front is maybe more difficult than getting a two for one out of it. So that, that's really the main sticking point. I, I think that going kind of top down from the other direction so standard you know is dreadball plus or always a great card to have access to 
in Pioneer, we have Dreadball, and that is, you know, one to two of sometimes in stock Rakdos, and so I don't think this is enough of an upgrade that you're playing more Dreadballs total now than you were before. Like, you still need some mix of instant speed removal and so on, but yeah, the fact that you, you know, against Rakdos Sacrifice, which is kind of an issue sometimes for the mid-range decks, you, you blow up their Witch's Oven, or uh, Killing Chain to the Rocks actually is a pretty big one against all of the various, uh, you know, four-color, five-color decks. Uh, so yeah, a, a nice clean upgrade there. Uh, not a game-changer, I think, but just a solid upgrade to a solid card. And then Modern is where it gets really controversial for me, because it becomes both very easy to turn on, it's easy to cast and has good colors in the best and most popular deck, and fixes some issues on paper which our deck is struggling with. So uh, Scales is being touted all over the place at the moment as the scam killer uh, of the day, which if you buy into that, maybe this is part of fixing that issue for scam, where yeah, you blow up a Scales uh, or an Ozolith and uh, get to terminate some other thing. I think it's being a little oversold in that context, um, because if you look at where that second mode is easiest to, tur to, to uh, turn on and most important, a lot of the time they're not exposing, or they don't have to expose that one drop until they've got some use out of it. So uh, against Tron, for example, like, yeah, sometimes they have a hand which they, they keep a, a middling six and they have to run out their map on turn one. You get to tag that and, and the game is over in a way that, you know, any other option couldn't hope to do. Um, but you can't really rely on that. And it, that's very sensitive to play versus draw, of course, as well. But then thinking about other ones as well. So uh, Amulet, for example, right? This blows up Amulet of Vigor. That's a really good quality for a card to have. But if it's if you're cutting your terminates for these, then if I, from the Amulet side, know that I have complete freedom to do whatever I want on my turn once my creature has resolved, I, I think I am taking that over, you know, my amulet is a little more vulnerable than it was before. Likewise, for both Hammer and Scales, uh, their signature enchantments, or their, like, enablers, their Colossus Hammer and so on, often they can sandbag that for a turn where they're getting immediate value out of those, and in a way where, you know, if that Hammer hits you once, or that A triggers once, it's too late by the time we get back to your turn. Like, you, you are dead or close to dead. The, the damage has been done. Uh, so it, it's a good upgrade there, but uh, those are also matchups, you know, certainly Hammer and Scales too, where not having that instant speed removal is a really big downgrade too. So I don't know how that comes out in the wash. Maybe it's still uh, better and helps matchups, but it's not the, the game changer that I think it's, it's being advertised as. I, this sounds to me like you're just describing game states where you're not allowed to cast cars against Rakdos and have to hope that that's good, which does not sound good to me. Well, yeah, there, there is this weird bind of, like, do I hold my Sigala's Aid to play around uh, Modern Collapse, or do I hold my Sigala's Aid and get it griefed, and then my, my chances of winning the game go out there with it? So there is that weird bind uh, sometimes, but I, you know, from, from the scam side, if I thought any of these matchups needed help, like, okay, I upgrade my two to three Terminates into these, potentially, but then th there's more work to be done. Like, that, that's, uh, that's only a small part of it. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I think we can move on from this card besides to say that it's, like, obviously going to be very good and just, like, kind of messed up. Um, finality counters are technically a thing, but, like, they've sort of always been a thing, and now they're just formalized as a counter. I don't really have real thoughts on that. Um, yeah, it, nice quality of life upgrade, I think, especially as that that line of text becomes more common. So I uh, do love to see that. Um, and then I guess one, one general topic to, to get into with the cards in the set is just the volume of reprints we have. So uh, a lot of the 
more iconic cards from the first trip to Ixalan, and there weren't that many, so uh, got to bring back the highlights. Uh, we have all of Charter Course, Threatening Brontodon, Growing Rise of Elamok, which I, I expected to see come back maybe in the Commander decks or something. I know that people have been clamoring for a reprint of that card, but it's just in the, the standard legal uh, set as well. We have uh, Gishath, the uh, the big top-end dinosaur, and then uh, Souls of Spyglass, uh, Treasure Map, fan favorite, and then, of course, uh, the much-hyped and much-maligned uh, Cabinet of Souls as well. And I guess also a braid, which it seems like that's this uh, evergreen standard card in the way that stuff like uh, Duress and Negate and so on uh, have proven to be too. Uh, so thoughts on the uh, uh, the new status of a braid and then also just uh, the reprint volume or any of those uh, specific reprints uh, as well. Well, I, I don't like a braid as a card to be constantly reprinting, but maybe this is more of a debate about whether two mana deal three damage to your creature is like even playable under modern design. But my general opinion of a braid is still anchored in the initial printing where, like, you made this artifact block and you're like, let's let these cards flourish. Let's ban the two broken ones. And then, like, you get to the end of it and it's like, here's a braid. You're not allowed to play any of that stuff. Good luck. That sucked. Like, that was that was not good. And I don't think that that's something you, you want repeating unless you have pushed, like, card power so far that just the card of braid is not good enough for standard. I'm, I don't feel like we're at that point. I think it's just like, I don't think it's an especially interesting card to have exist is really kind of where I'm at. Yeah, it, it's a tough balance between uh, just not having key safety valves for a card type and then the other extreme of Dromokas Command just effectively banning enchantments as a card type for, for an entire year and a half. Um, I think a braid is more on the tame end of that, but uh, I, I think initially when you if you go back to og xlan this was at uh, an era where coming off of you know smugglers copter and then motor vehicles still just being the best deck anyway and then uh the etherworks marvel of it all as well uh and some other uh cards that caused some grief over the years like you know gideon and other stuff we had this whole stretch where the answers were a lot worse than the threats and you wonder how many of these cards would have needed to be banned in the first place if you just had let's say uh duress pithing needle and then like one or two other uh, generic answers like that in the card ball uh it feels like a lot of those problems could have been uh they, they still would have been good and maybe annoying but not to the the dominant and obnoxious extent that they were and so i think with xlan and now maybe again you're seeing this reaction against that we're like yeah we, we always want to the fail safes are there even if in the process it's going to box out some of the the coolest stuff that might be possible otherwise but which in practice like you know, in Kaladesh uh, and Aether Revolt, there were a lot of cool build-around artifacts, but were those even playable in a world of Aetherworks Marvel? Not really. And so, yeah, if maybe a Braid is keeping those down, but if a Braid is keeping whatever their other Apex Predator would be down as well, then maybe that's a watch. I don't know. Yeah, I think it just hurts those decks more, especially in an era where we're already talking about, like, do the mechanics actually matter? Like, it's you're just making it harder for your mechanics to matter. So, specifically, thumbs down on a braid. And I think, in general, the volume of reprints is... I, I don't love it. I I actually, like, went back and looked at it. And, like, if you look at, like, RTR and even Neon Dynasty, the reprints are pretty sparing. And there's, like... You got Thirst for Knowledge in um, Neon Dynasty. You get, like, a splash here and there of, like, high-profile reprints. But it honestly feels like with this set, like, they weren't sure if they could ship a full set of whatever everything else was doing and have people like it. So they just threw in, like, the best five cards here instead of in the spec. Like, 
what is the point of a special guest if you're just putting Gisop in the normal set? Like, it, that, that is so confusing. It, it is funny that, you know, OG Ixland block had, like, ten cards that people liked or care about. Let's just have them all back, you know, for, for another go uh, so they can get their, their day in the sun properly. Um, I, there are some that, that really do speak to me. So Charter Course, I think, is just one of the cleanest, nicest designs of all time. And so I'm glad that that gets another run here, even if you really could have printed it in, in any set and it would have been fine. Thirst for knowledge, that, that comparison is funny to me because I, I forgot that that card was actually there in the set and coming off the heels of uh, Thirst for Discovery in literally the previous set, um, like f- filling that card's traditional role much better in a generic sense and then also seeing effectively zero play. It's just kind of weird to uh, to process all of that. Um, but some of the others, like Growing Rights, I... I don't think conditions are any better for it in standard these days than they were back then, but if if they are, then I guess that might be cool. And then Sorcerer's Spyglass, great. You kind of need that around. Treasure Map is... Treasure Map, I think, was underappreciated at first in its time, but since then we've had so many maps and Maze Mind Tombs and Reckoner Bank Blasters specifically that I feel like that, uh, you know, p- people will know about that now. And I also don't know how well the card Treasure Map has aged in comparison to those where, um, you know, the others, like Bankbuster being able to attack for four somehow out of nowhere was a big part of that card seeing success and map only kind of offering this continual card selection, I don't think is enough to cut it anymore. Yeah, actually, I even forgot one on this list, Resplendent Angel. What, what, like what? Like, so I, it's kind of interesting. So like Growing Rights, I assume is actually a technical issue where it's very hard to put a DFC into a commander deck or in an alternate print sheet. So that it just has to go in the main set. Sure. Cavernous Souls, whatever. Like you could sneak one of those in. Like Charter Course, no problem. Bronzedon, no problem. Treasure Map. But like it's the Giseth and Resplendent Angel parts where I'm just like, what? Like why are we pushing this hard? Like what? I don't know. Just like use the mythic slots on like cool new cards and find other ways to put these into packs. I just, I don't really, again, I don't really understand what the purpose of this is when you already have a dedicated reprint slot going into the packs. Yeah, Geeseth, I, I kind of get because this is like the iconic big dinosaur from the first time around. It feels like you could just make a new iconic big dinosaur and then the people who really love dinosaurs, uh, aka all of us, just get to play with both in our commander decks. But anyhow, Respondent Angel is a really baffling one to me because I I forget if there were any angels or how many on our last trip to Ixland, but I, I, I think of dinosaurs and merfolk and I I guess I, allegedly there are pirates and vampires in this plane as well. I, angels would be far down the list of, uh, of tribes that I expect to associate with Ixland. So I guess they, I'm glad they reprinted it at some point, but like, why here? Why now? Beyond me, maybe you know, you just get to a point where maybe you have to cut the white mythic at the end of the set, and you're like, "Gotta chuck something in there." This is fine. I I, I suppose so, but uh, it's something to to puzzle over. Let's get into the. I guess Cavern of Souls is is this a game changer in a meaningful way for uh, standard or pioneer? Do you think? Uh, I think specifically, I wrote this article for Channel Fireball when it was initially previewed, like a month or so ago, but. To summarize, I think in Pioneer it actually is. Um, I think the very specific application is going to be blue creatures. Um, like, the biggest hurdle for spirits or merfolk to clear in Pioneer is often the fact that the problem for your deck is that your opponent is going to sideboard, or is going to beat you if they just get to go, like, 
fiery impulse other one mana way to trade, other one mana way to trade. Because those are going to trade off for your twos and threes just by the nature of the creature types. And, like, you just lose if that happens. And then you have the secondary problem of, like, if the metagame is such that your opponents just have Mystical Dispute in their sideboard, you're screwed. Like, you're you're just drawing dead from the fact that, like, your opponents get to start with X one mana removal spells in their deck and just board in four more at no cost. Like, that's a non-starter to me. And adding Cavern solves that problem. So I think that is a pretty big swing. Yeah, I, I could see Cavern, weirdly, making Spirits a better deck, but also making its position in the format much worse, just because the some of the creature decks you're trying to Geist Light Snail or something can just plow through that as if nothing happened. Um, so interesting to think about the implications there. More broadly, though, so people jump to, like, can you recreate the, the modern five-color human deck uh, in Pioneer now that you have uh, 12 Rainbow Lands uh, effectively and you I think you can but I'm not even sure why you want to like yeah. lo- looking at the card pool yeah you, you can live the dream of a uh, werewolf pack leader into Mantis Rider like the mana just about uh, allows for that now I think but if that's all it is and it's not worth a squeeze and is that start even better than you know premier mono white two drop human into Adelaide most of the time like I, I don't think it is no, I mean, the, this is the problem, is that uh, the reason the human stack was good, like, if you look at all the writings about modern in the 2018 era, it's about every deck is trying to play the best one drop possible, except for the Mox Opal decks that are trying to play the best zero drop possible. And the human stack had 12 one drops that were really good. Champion, Noble Hierarch, and Aether Vial. And none of those cards are Pioneer legal. So what are you doing? Like, what is the point? I don't see one. Yeah, there's also the fact that a lot of the the tribal decks in Pioneer that would want to splash a bunch of things also want to be collector company decks. And these cards, they help you cast your humans, but they don't help you cast your your company. So the Ban Humans deck from a while back, this was its big problem, is it could really cast any color of humans, but just having enough green sources for its signature green spell was easier said than done. So maybe you get to just play 12 Rainbow Lands and then... 12 like green white dual lands or something now but uh, that i i just don't don't think that's all worth it in the end the the exception would be is if uh there are creatures in the same card type across colors that have some kind of uh, particular synergy or combo which th- this actually ties the room together to let you do that now so i'm thinking of like the uh yoel larson's vanifar combo human deck effectively from one of the rcs last year which uh that deck is mana base was pretty funky and it kind of had to be whereas now if um you get to just play 12 rainbow lands when it matters and then your other lands you make sure those can cast vanifar and in a pinch your mana requirements are f- uh like not that demanding uh, in terms of pip so you can play your your excess uh unclaimed territory on uh elf or something for your vanifar like that that actually is a big upgrade in a way that just uh trying to turn your uh mono white aggro deck into a five color aggro deck like that that isn't uh in the same ballpark i think i had totally forgotten about the deck titled swedish vanifar combo <laughs> wow okay i'm glad that i remember now that's exciting. Or, or there's also uh, the the elf deck, which uh, Xbox Greg has been uh, flying the the flag for by himself in these Pioneer Challenges, where previously this was a green-black creature deck, which if you were feeling bold, you could maybe splash with some other color. And now you get to do the full like double splash for Werefox Bodyguard, which, uh, easy to forget, is just an elf um, from Wilds of Eldraine. And so now the deck, uh, I think the list I saw most recently, is basically... Uh, mono green elves splashing 
a few black cards over here, and then also this solitary double white card over here, just off all of the same lands. And that actually is possible now in a way it wasn't before. Let's get into the actual new stuff then, because uh, there is a lot to sink our teeth into. Uh, big picture question, do any of uh, dinosaurs, vampires, uh, and pirates, merfolk, whatever, do, do they make it across the line now in any format in a way that they didn't before? Um, I'm kind of interested. I mean, I think vampires is the one that interests me the most. I don't think the dinosaurs upgrades push me to want to do that enough. Like, there is the belligerent yearling as a two drop to back up, um, marauding raptor, but I don't think that's big enough because I just like, you need a better two drop than that, it feels like. And I don't think there is one yet. Um, and I think that the like one man, we'll get to this card more later. I don't think the one mana explore merfolk is enough for me to want to make merfolk happen in pioneer, but it, it's getting closer. It probably needs another merfolk card from another set. Um, which is kind of disappointing. I like it's weird to go to the Merfolk set and this not be enough. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe you can subscribe to the Nikachu uh, Deep Root Pilgrimage uh, hype, but I'll let someone else go down that road. Okay, uh, quick, quick, uh, quick creature type update: zero angels across uh, both Ixalan and Rivals of Ixalan. So God knows how this one ended up here. Maybe it, it got lost in the Omen Powers or something, and I, I don't know the lore here. But uh, someone, uh, someone, figure that one out for me. Special guests. Yes. Um, the, I am sort of interested in um, how, like, the vampires, I don't know, they just print a new big vampire and you're, like, soaring. But I, I think that Queen's Bay Paladin is, like, within range of being interesting. This is the uh, five mana, five four that has ETB or attack uh, reanimate a vampire with a finality counter. So like, I think that card is in range of being interesting, probably not quite good enough, but Soren is still a really good card. So, um, and I, yeah, I don't think the others are, are getting anywhere. So unfortunately creature types will continue to not matter. Yeah. So I, Merfolk is the one which, uh, certainly the Merfolk perverts out there will be paying close attention to, but also it is, and has been in the past, like a strong uh modern deck which if if it gets like another good one drop or it has a lot of twos already but if there's some new merfolk which fills a specific role then you can see an already good deck getting even better and then maybe uh you know i i think the the conditions here would be different but you could imagine there being enough to like push it across the line for uh for pioneer maybe uh and then vampires was a fine pioneer deck once upon a time, but has really been paracrept out. And so there's always, as you said, this Sorin trek. Any plane that has vampires on it, uh, you're just waiting to see if there's some good, like, five drop, six drop vampire, which if you cheat that in with Sorin, if it's good enough, maybe you're not a vampire deck anymore. You're just a Sorin combo deck, which you're building towards that specifically. So with uh, Galta and Maverin, I think was the seven from. Martin Machine, like, you're not playing that in your Black White Vampire deck, you're playing your, uh, like, Golgari, uh, Sorin combo deck, which, uh, that one never went anywhere, but, uh, with enough either big vampires or good cheap vampires, like, that strategy is back on the table, but it does seem like with every, uh, vampire-infested plane they go to, they're really careful to make sure that Sorin doesn't become this, uh, broken, like, show-and-tell-style effect, so, uh, well, I think don't get your hopes up too much there, but uh, there are some interesting two-drops. So, like, uh, Amalia, which we'll, we'll have a specific use for her before too long. Uh, Bartolome, uh, Ditto. Like, two interesting two-drops that really push you in different directions. And then there's uh, the 
Sanguine Evangelist, uh, the three drop, two one with battle cry, and when it ETBs or dies, you make a bat. Like, that's an interesting card, and it's something which you're happy to sacrifice to your Sorin or to anything else that cares about sacrificing, like Bartolome. Um, but I just, I, I don't know if the, the tools are really there to make a vampire deck worth it, as opposed to just some, some deck that cares about sacrificing stuff. Yeah, I actually, I take back, I, there's actually a vampire I find more interesting that I didn't even notice uh, until doing a more exact search. And that is, I did not realize that Bloodletter of Aquila's, you know, we're just going to call that one a wash. Um, this is the the one black, 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 2-4 uh, flying that whenever an opponent would lose life during your turn, they lose twice that much life. I, I want to talk about this card individually. I think this card is actually, like, not an EDH, like, double dang. Like, this card, I think, is just genuinely good. Um, it's the kind of, like, this is just, like, a 4-mana four 4-4 four, four flying that pumps all of your creatures, the turn at ETBs, and in the future. Like, I think this card's really good, but also, um, it has a naturally, like, really scary pattern with Sorin, where if you just go, like, 2-drop Sorin, and then the next turn you plus and sack the 2-drop after mm. playing this card, they die. Like, you deal 6 to them and gain 3 life. So, I I think that this card is, like, it might not be quite good enough for constructive play, but, like, it is borderline. Like, it has ETB value of dealing damage to your opponent, which is the thing that sets it apart. But, like, in that specific vampire aggro role, I would I would keep an eye out for this one. I This is the card more than the 5-drop, the actually, that I think is... Yeah, that, that one pushes you towards a more aggressive vampire deck. So maybe you go back to red for some of the like Innistrad Crimson Vow vampires or like Blood Tithe Harvester would be a nice one to work in there as well. And then, yeah, as you say, just Sorin with this, like both both of those cards are good and castable individually. And then if you get to do the Womo combo, then you can actually set up these like uh, pretty realistic turn four kills, I think. So maybe that uh, that has more legs and I'm giving it credit for there. As for the other tribes, like pirates, uh, it, notionally there are pirates in the set, but uh, I, I don't think I've seen any yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, there's, I haven't seen a reason to play a pirate, like, because it's a pirate, so I just I just pretend they don't exist. I, I think that this was one issue with the, uh, I, I mean, any, uh, like Onslaught had this, uh, Lauren to some extent too, but basically any set revolving around creature types is going to have this, but uh, you have two or three which are fan favorites, and they know it, and they really lean into those. And then there are the ones which are there because, well, we got to have a few more creature types and uh, someone out there is going to be a fan of, uh, you know, giants or birds or something. And I feel like pirates have been <laughs> filling that role both uh, last time we were here in X-Land and then uh, this time again as well. Yeah, they've got some cool individual characters, so they got that going for them. Um, on the subject of birds, you want to go through the rest of the Restless Cycle? Um, I don't really see any of these as standouts, but they're at least interesting. Uh, so... In terms of, I don't think any of them are really uh, above the curve, or I don't think uh, once you move beyond standard, I don't think you're going out of your way to put any of these uh, in decks. And we'll talk about why that might be for Pioneer specifically, but uh, just lining them up against, uh, certainly the, the enemy ones in Eldraine were just better across the board, I think, than the BFC, Oath of the Gatewatch ones. Uh, and then the black-white was kind of a push, but also kind of the same card anyway. Uh, with these, uh, the, the Waterwake cycle were really good. And I guess Lava Core reaches, we, we've officially upgraded now, so Ragdos fans everywhere rejoice. But the others, I think, a lot of them, there is a real debate of which one of these is better in general and would be better in the context of the actual decks you want to put them in. Yeah, so like I 
I do not want to put Restless Ridgeline so that's the green-red one. It becomes a 3-4 and pumps another creature, plus 2 plus 0 and untaps that creature on attack. Don't like that card. I want my creature lands to be a standalone threat after a Wrath happens, and this is just like a stupid 3-4. Don't like the blue-black one. It just turns into a 4-4 Death Touch that mills someone 4 cards. Like, whatever. Don't care. Um, don't actually like the green-white one in the context of most applications. It's, uh, becomes a 3-3 that pumps your other creatures plus one plus one until EOT on attacks. I actually think that there's a lot of tension between, like, not just going two colors, but, like, a tapped land and creating the go-wide board that this card would be good in. This card would have been phenomenal with, like, Spectral Procession, but until you have those kinds of cards, don't want to touch this. Um, I think that basically leaves the good two to discuss, which are the Rakdos one, which is, I think that one's just generally good. It's hard to, it's like menace on, it's a two, three menace for three, like animates to, for three mana and lets you rummage on attack. Like just all around really good of like hard to block really nice on a smaller creature land. Uh, two, three body is just like generally good if you need to get it into combat and rumble with smaller creatures. And the like rummage effect is really nice when you're like, well, I need a little bit damage. I need a little bit of like other stuff. Like just like the Rakdos mid range mid game, like makes this a good card. So thumbs up there. Um, I guess let's discuss the blue white one because that's the one that feels the weirdest. Uh, it becomes a two three flying for one white blue and then makes a map token on attacks. Yeah. So in a standard context, you, you do have, uh, like the Greg Orange take on blue white control and so on. And, uh, there are control decks where I think most of those would rather have a colonnade than have this. Right now, though, if you're looking at the uh, the various takes on Esper, so uh, there is Esper Control, but m mostly you're looking at Esper Midrange and then also Esper Legends. I think those more proactive takes on Esper, they would love to have Colony too, but uh, in a deck that has like uh, Rafine and other rewards for attacking, just having this sitting there and being able to just fire it up at a moment's notice um, and then benefit from all those other cards that feed off you having uh, other creatures, that is a really big deal, I think. And uh, Restless Fortress, uh, the, the white black land from Aldrain, that was already, uh, we found a pretty big deal for Esper Legends and Esper Midrange, even though it was actually quite poorly suited to uh, going in those decks. Anchorage is just a lot better in that role, and maybe then that has to change your mana base in other ways, because it's a blue-white land instead of a, a white black land. But I think that... Might be a change you want to make anyway, because uh, there are other cards in the set like uh, Malcolm, there's like two drop, flash, uh, looter, legend, and so on, where you can build a more blue heavy or flash heavy take on Esper. And then uh, if you want to be more blue anyway, then Anchorage is just the best creature land that you could realistically uh, hope for. Uh, the Reef, I think, is not embarrassing there either. Just 4-4 four, four Death Arch is really hard to rumble with in combat, good follow-up to a Sweeper, and so on. But I think the the Anchorage is a very big deal, at least in Standard. Um, and then when, once you get to Pioneer, the, the issue that most of these have, I think, is that uh, the cost of a tap hand is much higher, and this goes especially for the black one. So uh, in my Thoughtseize Fatal Push midrange deck, I often really want to have Hive of the Eye Tyrant there over whatever the Black X uh, creature land is. And it's not clear that once you get to animate your creature land, that it would be better than Hive the, the Eye Tyrant anyway. And the same principle goes for, like, Den of the Bugbear in these uh, proactive red decks, or, um, you know, Hall of the Storm Giants is really, really big and also really impressive. And so, yeah, I, I don't think you're... Uh, if you're playing, like, a Nassif-style blue-black control deck, I don't think you're cutting your your halls for restless reefs anytime soon uh, at least it's my guess um and so i think that 
takes out most of the spots where they could fit in, except for maybe the blue white one where uh cave of the frost dragon embarrassing don't want to put that in my deck and then maybe there's some uh lower to the ground blue white deck which uh hall of the storm giants is a little too expensive for there and maybe that's where anchorage comes into play even though in that hypothetical deck it coming into play tapped is a real downside in its own right that's fair and i guess this discussion has made me turn around a little on restless reef because the thing i was going to say about the anchorage is that like Every time this attacks, you get a map token, but every time Celestial Colonnade attacks relative to this, you, you deal two damage to your opponent. And then I just started thinking about the fact that Reef just, like, has four power and clocks your opponent pretty fast. And, like, I don't know, people died to enough wandering fumaroles. Maybe maybe Reef is just fine. Maybe I'm I'm too low on no, the four I, I, I think I think Reef is very good, and these days there are a few contexts where it would just be better than Creeping Tarpit was in its day, where, like, Tarpit was pressuring jason mind sculptor keeping planeswalkers in check um and there are some tempo decks like uh, i guess extended fairies would be the go-to where just top it is the best thing you could ask for but if you just have random blue black control deck i think most of the time reef is going to be a better man in that deck than creeping top it would be just like for, in a format agnostic sense um and if you care about the milling then uh you know a lot of stuff that cares about your graveyard in some way then minor upside on reef there i don't know i, I think the reef is just very good and we've been we've been conditioned by how good top it was and then also just how bad demir as a color bear has been in recent years that like it's easy for that one to go under the radar a bit um the anchorage so yeah colonnade hits harder this one is meaningfully cheaper i think and then also uh in a deck like esper legends for example uh, the explore on the map token can be quite relevant because if you have Rafine going, you know, you just drawing extra lands, you now have stuff to uh, knife away. But also, you have creatures where you you kind of care about the both the words and the stats on them. So if you get to put another counter on your Denik, well, maybe Denik gets to attack now uh, when it wouldn't have had good attacks before, and also you're getting another point of life when you do that. So uh, there's a lot of stuff like that to where Anchorage looks really good to me. Um, but then Reef just does too, like they. Let's say your opponent is trying to stabilize behind a shield or something, but you just animate your reef and attack, and now they either trade off their best threat or they're they're still taking damage. Like I, I think I think reef just is a very good card, and I think this whole cycle is is pretty price to move uh, in a standard context too. Uh, just one word on yeah. Well, uh, hold up. You, you, I just want to I want to put something out. You you said you wanted to race a shieldred. I don't want to race it, but if they play it, I got to do okay. something about it, and maybe the best answer like. Yeah, if I have go for the throw, I'm just killing it and doing something else. But I, I'm not always going to have that. And or, or maybe you know, I'm passing the turn. They play their shieldred. I urtai the shieldred. I untap. I fire up my reef. Now I'm attacking just for seven out of nowhere. Like there, there's a lot of lines like that where just having this big thing on demand ends up being being really important. Also great with your own shieldred too, right? Like if uh, shieldred is nickel and diming them, and they're having to kill that. Well, then maybe they're just exposed to being attacked before every turn. Um, the so the black red one uh my my teammates uh for the past few events we've now the majority of the team has registered cruelty of gigs uh and 
Uh, I think regretted it after the fact. <laughs> oh, Turns no. out this black red line, really, really nice in your cruelty of Gixek. Uh, just a, a, another Discord outlet which you 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 play cruelty on chapter one. Chapter two finds your reanimation thing. You fire this up. You now have this Discord outlet there ready to go. Uh, if the game goes long, you just fire this up and attack. So I and there's a lot of other good uh, enablers in the set too. I can see already that the writing is on the wall, and God knows what the uh, the standard PT in April or May is going to look like. There, you you are. Uh, Let's talk about one of those enablers. This is the the six mana Cascade yes. Dinosaur that also has uh, open fire as the other mode. So this it's yeah it's it's uh what four red red for a seven six ETV discover five and then like two in a red discard this card deal three damage yeah, to any so target. That that is the perfect card for that kind of a reanimated deck. Also the perfect card for a glimpse in modern potentially. And this is. This is this is getting into the territory of you know any new card that either is a green creature or has the word land on it. People just rush to the amulet discord and and start uh, going off about it. Um, I, I don't want to be that person for glimpse, uh, but someone's got to be. So so why not me? But in that context, this is another card which it has that kind of duality of it theoretically can have, be useful pre glimpse, but then also is a good thing to glimpse into because it's just big and lets you re-roll towards either like a Fury or something or an Omnath or just a Cascade spell or a glimpse uh, to go again. Um, and yeah, if the game's going long, like this is pretty easy to cast and it's really good when you cast it. So it, it kind of uh, ticks most of the boxes there. One problem is like three mana is a lot for that kind of effect, especially when that is a turn that ideally you want to be cascading on instead. And it's still not a big enough chunk of damage to kill a Teferi most of the time, so it had its downsides for sure, but I, I would at least yeah. be trying it uh, well, at some point there. That's fair. Two things I will say. Also, like a three-mana play that doesn't advance your battlefield is kind of dicey. And then the other thing you just realized, the name of this card is Trumpeting uh, Carnosaur, and I missed an ability on the card and it's Trample, and I like their consistency in making um, Carnage Tyrant and Carnosaur 7-6 Trample, so uh, good world-building. Uh, that's, that's great. Um, on the subject of being the person who says, does this go in this deck? I think we should play this game with Mono Green Devotion this set because there's a lot of green cards and artifacts that people have asked this question about. Um, I guess we can start with the one that I like the most, which is, I believe the name I saw it spoiled as was Humongous Raptor. Uh, it's still, I don't think I've seen it translated to English yet. But it's uh, the two green green, five three ward two at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase, add green green. I think that it is understated how good it is to have, like, people see these things like a battle uh, battle for Zendikar, and their, or battle of Zendikar, invasion of Zendikar. Yeah, that one. Um, where it's like, oh, I get to pay four mana and get two lands, and the next turn I play a land, and I play my seven drop, and I just have this four to seven perfect curve. I think when you get higher up the curve, people underestimate the value of just, like, I play my ramp spell and I get the six mana next turn. And this humongous raptor into Storm the Festival is just like really clean and awesome. So like big fan of this in like a small quantity for testing. Um, I don't really expect to play a ton of it because it, it's not like there's a very limited number of four drops you get to play, but I'm a big fan of this one. I think the next card that I am less excited about is the green god. So this is, um, I'm looking up the exact name because it's another one of these where I'm going to give it one pass. Uh, Oer Kazlim, Deepest Growth, uh, three ma three green green for a 6-5 trample. Um, when it deals combat damage to a player, you reveal that many cards from the top of your deck and you can put a creature or a land from among those onto the battlefield. 
And then when it dies, uh, returns to the battlefield tapped and transformed as Temple of Cultivation, which is a land that taps for green. And then you can pay two in the green and tap it to transform it back into the god half of this if you control ten or more permanents. I don't like this card. Uh, I don't I think it's like largely a five mana six five trample. I don't actually think that if you have connected with your opponent's life total with your six five trample, no ETB five drop, that any like game text beyond that that doesn't literally kill them on the spot is relevant. And this is just like taking some other game actions that also get swept up in a farewell. And I guess the back half of this is fine, but like, I think there's even more limited space for five drops than there is for four drops. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm not in for this card. Yeah, I don't like it either. There are already other deranged uh, five drop big green idiots you can play like a just Vorinclex, I think is the, the recent one Bobby was trying, which I've actually liked quite a bit. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think you need to fill that slot with something like this on the curve. And if you are, I think there are much better options for that than, than this thing. So uh, hard pass on that. But uh, maybe the best mono green card from this set is a white artifact somehow. So uh, I know Bobby has had some builds which uh, touch white for either Torsamir as that five drop or uh, Elishnorn, I think, is one he's raised as well. But there's also in the past... Um, uh briefly people were trying this this heavier white splash for portable hole in the sideboard uh so this was a, a good card to bring in against some of the aggro decks but also having khan be able to fetch a removal spell uh was a very valuable upside which you don't get in mono green and it also uh let khan be relevant in the spot where usually it's at its worst which is uh, against some deck which is flooding the the board with creatures and where you know, there, there's not a anything you can get right away that really deals with that problem and so we now have a new candidate for that role in a dust rose reliquary so this is white for an artifact with war two as an additional cost to cast it you sacrifice an artifact or a creature and when it etbs you exile target artifact or creature an opponent controls uh, until it leaves the battlefield so uh any creature any artifact so with portable hole obviously uh things get above its limit very quickly this this can hit anything this hits uh, an opposing you know Old Growth Troll, uh, Cavalier of Thorns, anything like that. Uh, hit Shieldred, which can be a problem. Archery into the Dross, anything of that nature. Opposing Omnath, just uh, uh, important creatures. It, it hits those, is the, the takeaway there. And then also hitting artifacts uh, can be relevant too, especially in uh, you know, the Mirror or against like the, the new Breed of Gruel decks where uh, like just hitting Chariot or if they're still playing Sky Sovereign, uh, that as well. Uh, so a great card to have access to in your Khan board and you... The, the, the cost isn't irrelevant and you're losing your elf or something can be a big deal but it can also be an upside weirdly where you uh, you sacrifice your troll uh, and then that comes back as a ram spell effectively or you you sack your cavalier get the thing that you want back on top and then can draw or storm into that so lots of weird corner cases there i don't think enough to justify the white splash by itself but uh, if you are there already this is a, a good reason to be doing that yeah, I actually just want to put this card back into play with Goblin Engineer. That's all I want to yes. do with it. Yeah, so that, that okay. is the that's the other crucial thing, is that um, it's an additional cost when you cast it, but if you get it in through some other means, whether it's like Goblin Engineer or blinking it somehow, then uh, that's fine. That one's on the house. So you just get to do it again. And the really, uh, so to me, the standout advocation there is Worth Invention. Uh, so when Portable Hole was printed, that was actually a big upgrade for Wur at the time, even though the Word X were not doing so great. And now your Word just kills a thing. It kills, like, their their Fury or their, again, just list off anything you want. It kills their One Ring, even. It exiles artifacts. Um, so this is, 
maybe reason enough by itself to revisit some kind of like blue white versus deck although again like as itself is showing its age and lots of other reasons not to do that but this is a reason to do it if you want to talk yourself into it again i do not think people will shy away from finding reasons to do that um there's also some cards in this set that are like on this same artifact note that i, I think are like worth interesting or worth discussing in the same context of like what are the things it feels like they have stopped shying away from in addition to like you briefly mentioned um uh Bartolome, which has the free sacrifice ability is mana rocks with like weird context so there's um fabrication foundry which is the two mana artifact that taps for a white for artifact spells and then has like this weird reanimation ability on it but then there's also a card that i i don't think is getting talked about actually two that i think i have in this sort of like they break game rules in weird ways and like are worth noting one is the enigma jewel which has a bunch of other stupid text that you should just not bother reading but it really just has like blue etb tap tap for two colorless that can be used for activated abilities and then there's um i believe there's a land where like etbs and you choose a color yeah sunken citadel uh etb choose a color etbs tapped um taps for one color or one man of that color or two but only for activated abilities of lands i think there's a lot of room to explore in these like weird artifact adjacent decks that just like do any of these mana sources i mean i think the white one probably more of a uh a pioneer card but like the ones that are just like one or land ways to add two mana feel like they're breaking some rules that are like i don't want to say the words ancient tomb but they're operating they're breaking the same game rules as ancient tomb even if they're doing it a lot worse yeah I, notably sunken citadel uh very good with castle garenbrick as well as you know the whole like besager oh, cycle no. or right which in in pioneer you you go through the motions and you build a worse version of monogreen uh but if if there was a format where there was a good six drop green creature to ramp into then that might be something that you would uh consider more deeply there um you the lane the enters the battlefield tapped that's so good it, it, it sure does yeah uh, you, you mentioned that i had briefly mentioned uh bartolome in my article this week which went up today we'll link that uh, in the show notes i go over in but i go over bartolome in a lot of detail so this started as just here are a bunch of weird and wacky decks you can build with the new cards and very quickly turned into here are five plus really cool applications for bartolome because this card uh there are technically free sacrifice outlets in Pioneer, like Cartel Aristocrat, if you're down that bad, or there are some free mana ones, but it being free mana is disqualifying for the most part. Um, but having a two-drop sacrifice outlet, which is free and also good, and like reward you for uh, sacrificing multiple things, where with Aristocrat, like if you're sac sacking your whole board, great, your, your Aristocrat has protections from every color of the rainbow, but where does that get you uh, after that? With Bartolome, if you sack a board of five or six things, they're just dead because you have the biggest thing on the board and typically their spot removal, like their fatal pushes or lightning axes or whatever, don't line up that well against your uh, hunted witnesses, citrus suppliers, whatever your, your fodder is, but they need those to answer Bartolome. So you put them in this, this weird bind there. Um, and then if you care about anything like uh, sacrificing artifacts, which this has the same kind of batching there, then that's a pretty unique thing which you can do uh, in Pioneer now. If you care about uh, plus one, plus one counters, which it, I don't know if you saw the the white-black uh, Ozolith human sec that Doomwake 5-0'd with uh, on stream a while back, uh, with 
all of the uh, like enduring Bond Wardens and Scornblade Berserkers and Thalys Lieutenants and stuff. Uh, so in that deck, this isn't a human, but when you are loading up counters on things and then trying to move them around with Ozolith and Agatha's uh, Soul Cauldron and Bond Wardens, like, yeah, it turns out having just a carrion feeder is really, really good in that kind of shell. And then you go outside of that. So there's stuff like... Um, you can do the actual scales thing now that you have uh, ways to sack artifacts. Uh, if you have a redundant cauldron or ozolith, well, you just sack that and then keep going about your day. But then now you, you know, you can sacrifice Hangerback Walker more easily. So what does that mean? And if you, let's say you have a scales effect, well, Bartolome uh, grows out of control even faster. And so does your Hangerback Walker, which when it sacrifices is making more stuff which then is so each of those is like plus two which then turns into plus more for Bartolome so things get out of control very quickly and the mana's there to enable that now uh, or you go back to you know the early days of Pioneer uh, late 2019 early 2020 when people really tried to make Rally the Ancestors work and mostly failed but hey if you have a good sacrifice outlet now maybe some of that stuff is on the table again and like there's return to the ranks and and so on so this card like it's it's pretty unassuming but when you you know how valuable that effect is to the decks that want it well there's there's a lot of those decks which are have new life now in a way that they they haven't yet yeah it's kind of funny because like you talk about a lot of these things and i actually wrote this week about the the other two mana white black vampire which is amalia this is the one that goes infinite with wild growth walker it's like when you gain life, uh, Amalia explores, and then Wild Growth Walker is whenever creature explores, you put a counter on it and gain life. And then the whole combo ends with, like, everything getting blown up. Um, and the things I quickly found, just, like, goldfishing around and building decks, are that Amalia is just, like, a really messed up standalone card um, with, like, it is this weird hybrid of, like, an Ajani's Primate that just grows out of control if you have a Prosperous Innkeeper or similar card. But, like, also, like, it self-assembles its own combo in, like, future threats. So, like, it's this, like, weird engine value threat on its own that's really awesome. Um, I see you also got into Fiend Artisaning, and I was also really into Fiend Artisaning with Amalia. Um, just because, like, it assembles the combo, but also just, like, is another card that is, like, it's an engine builder and a standalone threat. And also, um, I think the important thing about the Amalia combo is that one of the problems with Fiend Artisan is that, like, you invest a mana to play your sack thing, and then you sack that thing, and then you pay, like, however much mana to go search for the other thing, and it's just a million mana. But when your combo cards cost two and two, it's a lot better. Um, and I had some of the, like, extraction specialist return to the ranks things going on there, but also, like, I think that that can layer into, like, the life gain combo deck in a way that, like, you have produced, um, between, like, that and Trellisara, um, and also, like, weirdly Voice of the Blessed, um, you have, like, this interesting layered Ajani's Pridemate stuff going on. I think the mana in that deck's a little bad, but, like, there's some really weird stuff. Like, the 10 counter ability on Voice of the Blessed actually matters. Because if you, like, have a Wild Growth Walker and a Voice of the Blessed, and then, like, you play your Amalia and gain a life, you go off, but, like, your Amalia couldn't attack as a 20-20, but your Voice of the Blessed is now, uh, like, 23-23 indestructible that didn't die and then kills your opponent. So, um... Yeah, like, these cards are both really, like, parallel, but, like, very powerful in a lot of the same ways, but, like, also just, like, one of them is board presence and one of them is, like, moving material. It's very weird. Yeah, I had vaguely wondered if there was some kind of a Soul Sisters deck you could build, which is essentially 
angels if angels had a playable mana curve um and <laughs> i think that's a really underexplored strategy honestly like there are so many good ajani's pride mates now and also so many good uh life gain enablers that you can just put those two together and then layer on whatever makes of like uh company reconstruction uh four mana ajani top end stuff that you want and that's actually a pretty good deck which i think I don't think you can do the Amalia wild growth stuff in that shell because like your wild growth is pretty bad outside of that but uh something in that space I I do agree is good and then my first thought with the the wild growth Amalia thing was to build it just as one of the the classic creature combo decks with a bunch of elves and then uh company quarter calling and that's fine for what it is is I think but the details are kind of hard to iron out I will say I think with wild growth walker don't don't play the bad explore creatures to make this other bad explore enabler a little more playable sometimes like that's just a losing proposition i make a slight exception for jade light ranger because that card is almost there on ray and that curve of walker into jade light is still pretty formidable but uh yeah the like the new one mana explore creature and so on i just don't have any interest in that in these shells and i think that's a, a common mistake i've seen people making when building that deck so far Oh, see, I I like that card a lot. And I actually had this bookmarked as like rank the three big explorer editions from this set, which are um C Note Scout, which is the one mana creature, uh Jade Light Spelunker, which is the X mana Explorer X, and then Sentinel of the Nameless City, which is the two and a green three four that ETB and attacks makes a map token. And I actually I think Spelunker is the worst of those three by a lot. Um, I think that exploring a lot in a single burst, and this is like the problem Jade Light Ranger had sometimes where it's just like, you get a lot of the same outcome that you didn't want, and you don't really have a lot of control over it just based on like, this is what's on top of my library at the time. And also the rate is really important. Like, the big thing about Jade Light Ranger saying is like, yeah, it's a, it's a three mana four three sometimes, that's good, or like a three mana three two that gets a land, whereas like, Spelunker, like, you have to pay it extra mana to get to all of those rates. It's just like, not good, whereas like, Sentinel is just, like, a decent rate. I don't mind either half of the scout, where it's, like, either 1-mana, one 1-1 one, one draw land, or, like, 1-mana, two, 2-2. Two. So, like, I, I'm, I'm kind of into the scout. I also think that the scout is um, a more material way to cheat your... Like, it's the same thing Llanowar Elves is, where, like, you could company into an Elves, but it's a little better. Like, it's just a more material way to do that, and, like, a better card to hit off company when it's, like... I flip three lands and this and some other cards. Like, it's just not good. But, like, I don't know. I, I'm kind of into that card. But my issue with the scout is if my deck wants a one mana 2-2, two, two, then it, it knows that it wants that and probably has some other options there to choose from. But if if it needs that and doesn't get it, that's a big problem. But then if my deck is has more interest in the I am technically exploring and sometimes this is, you know, 1-1, one, one, get a land from my deck, uh, ambitious farmhand style, then... The fail case where it is a 2-2 is not that inspiring either, so I, I think it's pretty hard to build your deck in such a way where you're happy with both realistic outcomes of the card. Um, whereas if if the basic stats are big enough and you're exploring several times or, uh, or on demand, then you can kind of uh, bring whichever outcome you get into the bounds of what you want. Whereas uh, Scout, for as much as you get for it being cheap, you just don't get that flexibility with it. I see you say that, but then you can say the same things about Murrow Branchwalker and like that card was just good. Like you just beat your opponent. Like I am I'm always here for a mid-range deck where like I have a creature that is like sometimes just kills like I want my mid-range decks to accidentally become the aggro decks, and like this is the exact effect I'm fine with. Branchwalker was was good in standard, right? But I think it really drops off 
beyond that where like you sometimes you do the blood tithe harvester thing with it in pioneer but i i would not rely on that if i could avoid it that's fair um I guess that we talked about a lot of green cards. I guess there's one more that we do need to talk about mm. uh, in the context of, uh, you know, you you can talk about this one. This is Spelunking. Yes. So uh, Spelunking, my my favorite card in the set. This is two and a green for an enchantment. When it ETBs, you draw a card and then you can put a land card from your hand into play. If you put a cave into play this way, you gain four. And lands you control enter the battlefield untapped. So... Uh, this is, if you look at it from the right angle, this is a reskinned Amulet of Vigor with an Explore or a Growth Spiral uh, attached to it. Uh, and that is a pretty good deal, if, if I do say so myself. I like to think I am qualified to weigh in on that, although uh, Twitter seemed to disagree. I, I, I posted that this card would be good in Amulet, and a lot of people with those like little cartoon avatars weighed in to inform me that, uh, actually, sweetie, uh, this doesn't work the way you think it does with, with Amulet. Uh, you know, if, if you read the rules, if you ask a judge, I, I think you'll find you'll be disappointed. Uh, to which my reaction was, okay, well, firstly, I don't know how you think it works or how you think I think it works, but regardless, like, it doesn't actually matter. Like, this, this effect, even if it did completely clash with Amulet, which it doesn't, we'll come back to that, this would still be a great card in the deck, I think. Um, and several other decks as well. Um, but the, the basic way this works to address that up front is uh, if, let's say you have two amulets and a spelunking, if the land says on it, this would enter the battlefield tapped, like a, a bounce land or a valica or something like that, then you will get to choose which of those replacement effects, either it entering tapped or spelunking making it enter untapped, would apply. And so if you do have double amulet, you can have it enter tapped artificially, and then uh, you would get the the double untapped from the double amulets there, kind of overriding the spelunking. However, if the land uh, normally does not enter tapped, then you will not have that choice, regardless of if, of if some other effect is putting it in tapped. So if uh, your Slayer Stronghold, for example, if uh, Arboreal Grazer or Primeval Titan puts that into play, then you don't get that choice. It just comes in untapped. So you you have this weird uh, disjuncture where, let's say you have two amulets and a splunking, you play your titan, you go for your Boris Garrison and your, your Slayer Stronghold, you have that choice with the Garrison, but you don't have it with the Stronghold. So you get uh, two Garrison untaps and one uh, Stronghold activation, if that's what you want. Uh, so that one's going to be a joy to explain to people for the first time at your, uh, your, your local modern events, but um, wrap your head around that, don't get con- confused by it. But Again, even if so, that that shuts off some stuff that is uh, possible sometimes. But first of all, like if you have double amulet, you you'll be fine. You will figure something out. You should not worry too much about that that corner case, which is already in the best subset of things your deck can be doing uh, to begin with. Also, if your view is amulet is important enough that it kind of overrides everything else, it's the namesake of the deck. This is a way to have more copies of amulet even against the decks which are really hard targeting that card or maybe they are going after your sagas aggressively so you have to board out those and so you have less redundancy on the card amulet but now you just have this additional amulet there uh ready to go and at, recently i've also been cyborging just generic ramp effects like explore and azusa and so on because the way that amulet is designed in modern is you need enough ramp just to function as a ramp deck and also as a combo deck, but each of your ramp spells have different pros and cons depending on uh, the matchup and the circumstances. And so 
being able to optimize your suite of ramp for the matchup is almost better than making some marginal upgrade to a land here or some other spell here. Um, and Spelunking just, like, it is now the best pivot or the best go-to that kind of covers that spread where uh, when they're boarding in their force of vigors and all, all of that stuff, then yeah, this, this can get blown up, but if it did, it replaced itself and ramped you in the process. You know, they, they force vigored your growth spiral, essentially. Um, and then if it lives, you get to unlock the upside of that. Um, so the card is really good when you're trying to do your main thing and also really good when they're trying to stop you doing your main thing. It is just a very good card in the deck, regardless of uh, people's misunderstanding of both uh what my tweet was saying and i thought my tweet was pretty clear and also what the rules are which l- luckily the tweet just contained an explanation from a judge so there's no need to be confused people uh so we're taking all that into account um i i don't know where exactly this will land in amulet i could see it being the kind of card which uh it, it's a little overhyped at first and it ends up just being like one more really good option or it could be the kind of card which yeah of course you play for and it's it seems ludicrous that anyone ever suggested otherwise could really land anywhere in between but i am very excited to to try and find that out yeah and i don't i think i just realized now that sunken citadel has the cave type uh so yeah that's cool you have four life sometimes yeah and citadel is it has other uh uses here too so you have the thing with with castle garenbrig which you really have to make sacrifices elsewhere in the manor to set that up but that, that could be worth it but even just stuff like uh citadel uh lets you transmute to Laria West. Like, it's two mana and two blue mana towards that. So that actually is realistic in your mostly mono-green deck in a way that uh, it, it isn't sometimes. Or, uh, you know, Citadel by itself can activate Urza Saga. Like, you just find uses for that card wherever you look. And so it's tough to know what you cut for it. Like, you you can't really cut any of the mandatory, like, singleton lands. You also can't really cut too many bounce lands or, or anything else. So I don't know where the room comes from, but... It is a question worth asking because, like, Castle is fantastic, Citadel is fantastic, the two cards together are fantastic, and then Spelunking with uh, Citadel, like, that that cushion of four life is is very relevant. You know, I've been sideboarding Radiant Fountain again for a reason, uh, and so if you get to unlock that upside at very low cost as well, then that's just the cherry on top. So, uh, I guess the question is, are you cutting the Microsynth Gardens, or is Sunken Citadel getting added to make the Microsynth Gardens cost less? Like... What's the equation here? Uh, well, well, Citadel, it doesn't really make it cost less in practice, right? Because it's, it's always being activated for X equals one. But um, basically, I think if you, you want to do the full like castle plus Citadel thing, then the gardens has to go just for space concerns. And then also because castle and gardens kind of compete with each other anyway. Um, and then you could you could just uh do a, a smidgen of this you know one cit- one or two citadels one or two castles uh you can sometimes you'll be uh searching up the citadel with your titan just to bounce it back to hand so that when you follow up with spelunk and you're gaining full life you're like building your own radiant fountain so a lot of cool stuff available in that space and then and this might not just be oh th- yeah i realized another curve with this where if you just have like saga amulet citadel done yeah, and that that's perfect because now you get full value from your saga and also uh, get to play the saga as soon as possible in a way that you, you really can't do that otherwise unless you also have like a grazer or some other ramp effect on top. So uh, that, that that is a really nice upside too. Um, and so I think with Spelunking in the mix, 
there now also are uh, other decks that open up where maybe it's not Amulet Titan as we know it, but some like uh, Spike Brew or, or other things you can do where just there's a lot of cards which when you control an added effect get much better and so you can build around those in a much more aggressive way so lotus field be a good example right so that card great with amulet or saga 4 amulet but if you have four more amulets now with your spelunking well that you you can almost be a field deck without needing a bunch of twiddles and so on unless you want those as well which maybe you do um or like scapeshift right like uh, Amulet has flirted with Scapeshift in the past, um, but it is too reliant on the card Amulet to really be consistent. But now you have a a good additional Amulet that has this uh, this buyout clause to it, and just spelunking into Scapeshift, like that is going to win the game by itself. You might have to jump through a bunch of hoops to set it up in some way, but I like that that curve, like that that's fine you just need to get there same thing with uh cultivator classes right that card really gets a lot better when you have an amulet now you have a bunch more of those and this one even draws you another card so you might have another land in hand once you get to that point so this just uh first order effects this card is great in amulet trust me i i think i'd like to think you could trust me on that uh if not anyone else but also there will be other decks powered by this card uh that are possible now and yeah this card is phenomenal also we want to jump back to pioneer actually um there was some discussion in our discord of uh how uh oppressive would mystic sanctuary be in modern if it was legal these days and even if you 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 hack away at that so oh sanctuary can only get back sorceries or something turns out doesn't uh come up in in modern because the card is banned thank god uh should be banned uh elsewhere as well but the card is still legal in pioneer you just can't really do anything with it until now because uh, Spelunking guarantees Mystic Sanctuary will always enter the battlefield untapped and get its trigger. And that actually, that, that difference in wording uh, compared to Amulet, like this is a new functionality that a card like Amulet uh, doesn't unlock. Uh, so there are effectively Spelunking combo decks available now where if you control Spelunking, let's say you you have a tutor effect like uh, Bring to Light, Beseech the Mirror, uh, maybe even uh, Solve the Equation or something. What you can do is you, you tutor for Scapeshift, you scapeshift into a sanctuary to get the tutor back, and then uh, some lotus fields, and you and any land that draws a card or, or discovers, you put that thing back on top. You draw the tutor again. You tutor for splendor reclamation, which then gets all of those lands back. And so now you have this loop where you you can loop that reclamation back on top of your deck and draw it, and you're sacrificing all of these lands to the two lotus fields, including themselves. So you're basically just replay the reclamation over and over loop all of these back into play, net mana in the process, and then once you've got infinite mana, then you just put the tutor back on top one last time, draw it again, and then tutor for whatever your win condition happens to be. Um, so in a deck that's, let's say, looks something like ordinary, like five-color on-map to light, you, you work in uh, Splunking, which is a, a fine card in its own right sometimes, works well with Obnath, uh, among other things, and then you now just have this two-card combo where you, you've got to put a bunch of these... Uh, weirdo uh payoff cards and lands in your deck but maybe you go up to 80 for yorion or you, you find ways to work this in but you now just have this combo functionality where your uh kind of a rampy control deck can just kill people out of nowhere suddenly i i think i need to see a 60 card deck list or maybe i guess maybe this is a 70 kind of situation it, yes. where this actually happens <laughs> yeah it, it could be that or this could be like the uh those like rona luca bring to light matchup decks where you almost have to get to 80 cards with Yorion just to fit everything that you want in there. Um, 
but I, I'm excited to try that too. And I hope that, you know, I get to do something like that at my, uh, my RC in a few weeks. Here's hoping. Yeah, that is, uh, that's a lot. Again, I would love to see the deck list. Um, we have talked about a lot of cards from the set and it feels like there are a lot more. So let's, let's continue. Like, are there ones that we want to quickly call out at the end? Like, or any other head to heads? Yeah. So we have, uh, I think we're just going to skip the results segment here. We've already gone so long and we can work that into oh, yeah. to something longer later on. And then <laughs> modern, modern, let's just talk about the state of modern next week. Yeah. Because, that's, uh, that's a whole thing. <laughs> that's its own thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for now though. Yeah. We, we got a lot of quick hits. Uh, we'll, go through in a rapid fire way the one last thing that i want to touch on uh, more is a uh, source of the lost uh, so this is one of the descend cards this is one in a black for a uh star slash star plus one so the the classic uh tamagoyf uh stat line uh, so as an additional cost to cast this you discard a card or sacrifice a permanent and then it has fathomless descent uh its power is equal to the number of permanent cards in your graveyard its toughness is equal to that that, that number uh plus one Lots of ways you can approach this. So one uh, easy one would be, let's say, a deck like Greasefang, right? Where you have some of these two-mana creatures that are discard outlets to get your vehicles in the zones where they need to be. But most of those are pretty mopey, honestly. Like, Rafine's Informant, fine. Uh, whatever Season Hallow Blade variant you want, okay, also fine. This card is an actual threat though if the game is going uh long enough so you can imagine you you grizzly salvage you miss on grease fang but you hit this and suddenly this is just a two mana six six or something that also is uh discarding a card as when you need it to be in a deck which already uh would like to have some kind of backup plan this one does use a graveyard so increases your exposure to that form of hate but uh there are already lists that are sideboarding and stuff like rotting regisaur right so a a big thing that can also be a discard outlet. And this is just a cheaper, more on-plan version of that that often will just be even bigger at the same time. Uh, and yeah, especially against like damage-based removal, like Furry Impulse or whatever, then okay, here's a, a two-mana 6-6 six, six, or 6-7, six, what up? Um, and then if you lean into this, then you can really push it even further. So uh, some of the older Grease Fang lists that had Citrus Supplier, for example, if you curve Citrus Supplier into this, you're almost guaranteed to have a gigantic uh, source of the loss by the end of turn two. Um, and that's even before whatever your turn three follow-up is. Like, th that curve, just your one drop into this, is going to lead to a lot of turn four kills with minimal effort required uh, beyond that. So that, that's just another nut draw you have uh, by yourself. So that's in Grease Fang, but you can also just build decks around that principle. So you could build, uh, like, one of these rally decks, for example, right, where you want to be milling yourself, you want to have a good fair uh like beatdown plan for when you can't be rallying and this card just kind of fits pretty neatly uh into all of that uh maybe you find other permanents you want to sacrifice but there haven't been good ways to do that yet this just kind of does that too so and then when you get to modern again uh you know fetch lands plus mistress bauble like you've heard this joke before uh but even stuff like street wraith or uh grief fury uh you, you may have heard of these cards like very easy to just stock your graveyard full of stuff uh, in a way that's reminiscent of like the the John Death Shadow decks from back in the day where you would somehow have like full delirium and be at 10 life for your Death Shadow by the end of turn two or something with with decent regularity like if you want to lean into this card in modern you really can lean into this card um, and it can you know it discards a Vengevine or something it discards a Secret Imp which you then dredge on turn three and then you I don't know uh 
do something else which lets you dredge again and suddenly you have a 1414 that's attacking out of nowhere like there's a lot of ways to really lean into this if you want to and i don't think you actually need need to lean into them all that much for this card to just be really big yeah that the i guess i hadn't really considered exactly how easy it is to get the stitcher supplier set up for this card and just make it this giant giant two drop um and yeah i, I think i'm largely of the opinion that like if my opponents are going to show up with rest in peace i just shouldn't play grease fang um I'm pretty down on Greasewing in general, but this is this is a powerful card that makes me think that I should explore that deck again or explore it in other shells. So that is good. It, you are are you a fan of Helping Hand, by the way? On the subject of like we were talking about um, the the Dusk Rose artifact and cheating that back onto the battlefield, like it's an additional cost on this. You can like reanimate it with uh, Helping Hand or like any of those similar effects. I just I just want to put it out there that I'm not a fan of that. This is the white on Earth that like returns something tapped and like has no other text. I just, I just don't, I'm not buying it. I don't, I think Unearth has just like consistently underwhelmed in modern and I can't imagine like a white version of it being that much better. I understand the whole like Monastery Mentor is legal and pioneer and standard. Like you could do that, but like that feels like a lot of steps to like chart a course, discard my mentor, bring it. Like I don't, I don't want to deal with any of that. Like I just, if I want this effect, I want can't stay away because sometimes I draw that card when I mill my deck. Yeah, notably, it also brings a creature back tapped, so that is a deal breaker for Greasefang. Um, but yeah, I, I think outside of like uh, the the usual monastery mental copium, I, I I don't think this one is going to get there, sadly. But good option to uh, you know keep in the back of your mind. And then yeah, going down the the rest of the the quick hits here. So we have a confounding riddle. This is a supreme will, but better on both ends. So. Uh, they have to pay four instead of three, and then the cards go to your graveyard instead of uh, the bottom. So if you uh, care enough about the self-mill or uh, to... I, I think this is a, a fine option, I think. Certainly in standard, but maybe also uh, beyond that too. Going down the list, we've got a lot of little cogs in the set. So there's Market Gnome. Uh, this is a white one-drop, which when it dies, you draw a card and you gain a life. And then if you if you craft it, you basically get to d uh, double dip on that too. And then there's the the Spyglass Siren, which is the like the Thraben Inspector or the Vodaran Epicure. It's a... Uh, this is the blue one here. Uh, blue 1-1, one, one, when it ETPs, you make a map token. And then there's some other uh, blue kind of a uh, Witching Well style card as well. So uh, keep those in mind for whatever uh, artifact nonsense you want to get up to as well. Uh, we covered uh, Bloodletter, some of the mono green options, uh, some of the like random other craft artifacts as well. Uh, we I, have a, I have one more head-to-head -head for you. Okay. Which of the blue three drops do you think is better? The Tidebinder or the Kitesail Larsenist? So the Tidebinder is the... The 3-2 for 2 and a blue flash merfolk that stifles and removes abilities on the permanent if it stifles like a non-land, non-enchantment card or something like that. Um, and then there's the um, the Larcenist, which is the the two, like it's basically a blue fiend hunter. 2 and a blue and it like ETB turns an artifact or a creature your opponent controls into a treasure until it dies. And that one's a 2-3 flyer, I believe. Yeah, I I guess I would say the lastness, the the, the tidebinder is a unique effect and it's also the kind of effect that people love. They they dream of just trying to get people with this and there's enough stuff to get that uh this maybe is useful in a way that some of the others are not. Uh probably still would say the lastness, uh but yeah, I think that's a, an interesting head to head. Um and then Yeah, I I wanted to bring that up just because I think that the lastness is like flying under the radar because it it's one of those cards that just has like 
a million lines of text and it's like for each player and like what is this doing it's like no it's, it's just fiend hunter in blue with flying and war mm. i think i think this card's great yeah and, and then beyond that uh glimpse the core so this is the the rampant growth that just gets a forest or can get a cave back from your graveyard uh notable for being the first actual rampant growth in pioneer that isn't as as awful as like ruin in their wake or thunderherd migration or whatever uh still pretty bad like it's no far seek you you have to be heavily anchored in green but this card at least exists now um judge of the forgotten so this is one of these weird modal cards which uh it's basically a card that you an effect that you care about and a few other things that can come up and you could in theory get two or more of them you're never going to but you could uh so this is uh effectively strategic planning or uh bounce target permanent or uh target player discards a card for blue black so i'm thinking here for the uh like the neoform attractor deck this is your strategic planning which you had anyway but also this is a main deckable way to like bounce a lay down in the void post cyborg or, or something weird like that that's totally fair yeah i i just want to agree with you that you're never getting the full on this if if you ever do like that's a moto screenshot and you're like oh my god like i i just can't imagine a world where like your blue black deck that is like self-milling and has a sorcery in it is getting to eight permanents in graveyard in a reasonable time span yeah and then uh Running down the list, we have Get Lost, which I think is an upgrade to the Fateful Absence uh, Soul Partition class of cards for uh, your your blue eye control deck or what have you. Um, there's Tarion's Journal as a weirdo sack outlet, which I don't think the current sacrifice decks actually want, uh, but uh, maybe you can find a home there. Uh, and then just a few other like neat little trinkets, which you can try to build around which i'm sure will be big hits in various like cubes or commander decks and so on but uh, none that really stand out for constructed otherwise i think no i i wanted to like vaguely comment on uh zoyawa's justice this is the two mana like pseudo chaos warp where they uh discover equal to the card's mana value and it, this is like the kind of card that like it almost feels like it could be good but i i just i don't think it's quite there but like it's kind of interesting that like there are setups where you could, like, look at your opponent's deck and be like, oh, they're just going to flip trash. Like, there's a lot of stuff in their deck that just isn't good, and I'm fine firing this off on their 5-drop, but, like, maybe that's a bit of a dream that's just not going to Yeah, happen. this is a, a fixed Tibbot's trickery, if you like, where you you try and think of a way to, <laughs> oh, to no. fudge uh, the, the required card, and, like, you actually can't come up with anything. So, I guess, good job. I, I, I suppose uh, I, but, but the first place my mind jumped to was well if you evoke a fury well this card you get to discover five and you kind of work your way down it, it doesn't actually work it just it, it, go, go through the motions yourself you mercifully cannot exploit this I think but then again like what's the point who, who is trying to play fair with this thing? yeah I think that maybe maybe we see some kind of nonsense pop up with it which is probably a good bridge to there is one, you know, bit of modern I want to talk about this week that probably falls under nonsense that I, we can get to if we're done with this set. Um, because if we don't talk about it now, it doesn't know. I don't know if it'll be timely ever. I, I did just want to bring up the uh, new and improved Mesmeric Fiend. So this is uh, oh, Deep yeah. Cavern Bat, or it's a bat. I, I don't know what its official title is, but uh, Deep Cavern Bat, perfect. Uh, yeah, one one flying lifelink. When it ETBs, you look at their hand, you exile a non land from it until uh, the bat uh, leaves play. So. 
essentially Mesmeric Fiend with a lot of uh, extra stats, and that matters because the play pattern with Mesmeric Fiend before was you would play it and it would sit there and it could never attack and it could never block, and so you just hope that some uh, light breeze wouldn't come and topple it over. And the bat is as fragile as that against removal, but this one does actually get in for damage. It gets in for, you know, what uh, to, for whatever extent that's meaningful. Like, you you play this on two, and you play your Rafine on three, or you, you play this, and then you attack, and then you ninjutsu it back, and then you replay and take something else. Like, yeah, you, you actually can play uh, games with this card, and it's not just, like, sitting there uh, looking gormless. That is exciting. I like this card. I... For, this was the card that got me with the expansion symbol. I thought it was a common. I was ready for the most messed up limited Wait, format of all not? time. No. Can you imagine <laughs> that in draft? Can you imagine a deck that just has three of these? How do you lose? You just play one on turn two and your opponent's like, I don't, I, what, what do I do? Like, they just die. Like, I, like, it's, yeah. Uh, so anyways, it's not a common, thankfully. If you wanted a Mesmeric Fiend or a, a Brain Maggot, something of that nature, then uh, this is a, a really nice version of that. Uh, but yeah, that, that's all that I had. Uh, what, what did you, you have in mind for Mod Nonsense to close this out? Well, we have Melting showing back up with the latest and greatest in Scape Shift technology. Um, with, I, I just appreciate this deck for having, like, it might not even be nonsense, but like, you know, this is what people are trying these days to try and get ahead in modern. So this is uh, Melting, I think in the past, has actually pulled this... Elvish Reclaimer, Flagstones of Troy Care nonsense, but um, notably now, Flagstones casts Reprieve and Cosmic Rebirth in this deck, and then I guess somehow Colony Heart Expedition has found its way in here? Yeah, I mean, with Expedition, you can uh, activate that on turn three pretty reliably, and then once you have, that jumps you up to turn four, you know, Dryad and a flurry of Valica triggers, or just Scapeshift, or Whisper Scapeshift, like if once you are focused enough on that plan, like Expedition, I think is still the best way to get that kind of big, big jump early. Um, but yeah, this is an interesting deck. I, I do miss the, the white green reclaimer decks from the like, uh, Uro fever dream days in modern. Um, and this is, I guess like the spiritual successor of those, uh, we'll note as well that, uh, this is the kind of shell which, if you are uh, spelunking with your scape shifts, like starts to look pretty good, right? Where like you, you stack your flagstones, and then you you get a land from that, and that comes in untapped, and then f uh, with your scape shift, like you're getting four additional lands. So very easy to parlay that up into just uh, either manual valica triggers or, or something of that nature. Or if you're doing any like weird lotus field shenanigans too, then. Um, fits in there nicely as well so flagstones a good part of the puzzle for those and also to bring it full circle uh fine thing to sacrifice your uh souls of the loss if you're uh, if you're built that way instead yeah uh, one thing that I, I probably should have processed a long time ago that i just i hadn't is that uh dryad of the elysian grove and cabaretti courtyard lets you tap the courtyard for mana yeah. on and like it's like it's a mini spelunking for your courtyard I mean, this may just be because I never, like, actually thought about the world where Cabaretti Courtyard ended up in my Dried of the Elysian Grove deck, but uh, I now have. Oh, real ones know this already. There, there have been a lot of uh, quite suspect, like, Urborg plus Courtyard decks in Pioneer, or uh, Yavimaya plus Urborg plus these as, like, d double dipping in Modern like, there's If you're willing to go down that rabbit hole, then uh, this is a familiar trick, but good to, to, to be aware of that. Yeah, now, now you know. And now, uh, I guess the other thing is that Phyrexian Unlife, uh, the One Ring is life loss. So, like, there's a wishable Phyrexian Unlife in this deck that kind of locks your life total out of dying to the One Ring. Kind of cute. Yeah, I, I have actually, uh, not to dampen your spirits too much, but I have seen a 
minor resurgence of uh 2023 ad nauseum uh which i guess your your three card uh clunky combo deck is pretty bad against scam on a lot of axes but the card for racing unlife uh unlife actually although uh, hold on if they void walk of that uh no you're, you're probably still okay but oh wait no hold on oracle you win the game. wait 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 no 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 it, so if they get angel's grace under dalthy void walker what happens um, you die. Yeah, that, oh. that's totally reasonable. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Well, anyway, it's fine. Sodek was just having a normal <laughs> one. Like, it's not just Sodek. Like, Doomwake was playing Rhinos with Shouldred in it. Everyone is just having a normal one about Modern. But that is a topic for next week. Yes. And so, yes, if you want to hear more normal takes about perfectly normal topics, uh, you can find us on Twitter uh, over at uh, Dom and Javier and at ARMLX. Uh, you can find the podcast on Twitter at Dominaria underscore pod. Uh, you can find our columns every week uh, at SEG and uh, TCG Player slash CFB, respectively. Uh, you can find the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dominarius underscore judgment. And you can find just normal chat by normal people about all manner of normal topics uh, over in the Discord. So uh, links to all of that in the show notes. We will be back next week with, I presume, a check-in on the state of modern uh, and just just what is going on there because uh, a lot of chatter about that one uh, recently too. Uh, so but prepare yourselves for all of that. But until then, uh, take care, everyone.